Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com/acast, code acast. Yo, stop your grinning and drop your linen. It's Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two films with something in common go head to head to see which one does it better and this time it's war as we wade with all the misplaced confidence of a team of colonial marines into one of movie land's greatest arguments on this behemoth of an episode in the red corner we'll be giving our final report on the commercial starship nostromo from 1979 it's the movie that started it all ridley scott's alien still with us brett while in the blue corner we're heading back to lv426 because wouldn't you just know it we've lost contact with the colonists there and i'm pretty sure it's not a down transmitter it's probably the greatest sequel in movie history but is it better than the original from 1986 it's james cameron's aliens just tell me one thing burke you're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. All right, people, on the ready line. Yeah. I am me. Yeah. Yeah. I am me. Yeah. 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 Get on the ready line, Marine. Get down the die. Get on the ready line. There's movement all over the place. Five meters, man. Four. Aliens. This time, it's war. Yes, by the end of this show, we will have definitively answered forevermore the question 
of which movie is better, Alien or Aliens? It's this week's Clash of the Titles. We're on Express Elevator to Hell. Going down. Two. One. Mark. Clash Potters, I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. And as you just heard, it is a big week on the podcast. Alien versus Aliens. I'm glad it's a big week this week. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but in my absence on last week's episode, you talked about football. We talked about films that featured football in them. I mean, did IQs just suddenly drop while I was away? <laughs> It's bold. <laughs> it's from the movie. Oh, is it? Yeah, Aliens. Oh, yeah, shit. It's all right. It's all right. I haven't seen it. It's all right. There's going to be a lot of quotes from Aliens throughout this podcast. Uh, so these were your choices, Victoria. They were. Um, so would you like to guess the connection? I noticed something. Did you? Um, the, the sort of villainous monster in each of these films has acid for blood. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. God, I hadn't even realised. So I think that's the connection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That. I mean, that's not not the connection. <laughs> it's, a, it's a mad contradict. Uh, Coincidence. Coincidence. <laughs> yeah. The opposite of. <laughs> yeah. Um. I actually, in all honesty, I didn't bother this no. week. <laughs> I, it's not because I've had a week off and I forgot. I just was like, is this something to do with aliens? Yeah. I think. Um. Let's not overdo this bit. Uh. It's alien. And aliens is and that, the connection. That's not to say that this bit cannot be great, but the no. connection this week is so screamingly obvious. Yeah. I think just, I mean, I feel like even me now mentioning it again. Mm, it's making it worse. We're wasting valuable time because there is a lot to talk about here. We could do a pod on each of these movies that would last three or more hours. So we've had to try and be as succinct as possible with our opinions, with our trivia. So I'm saying this because I don't want people to get online at Clash Pod and start going, ah, well, you didn't bloody mention Jonesy the cat enough. So I probably will mention the cat that's quite great. a bit. And yeah. we've got that covered. Yeah. Um, all right. So should we talk about who saw what when? Who saw Alien first? Who saw Aliens first? Chris, when did you first see these films? Well, I've said on the podcast before that I had Aliens spoiled for me by Spaceballs. <laughs> yeah, you did. So I was too frightened to watch horror films, as I've said before as a kid. So yeah, I saw Spaceballs first. So so the the the, the, the great scene in Alien was didn't have the same impact it would have uh, if that was out of the blue, yeah. what happened there. Um, I think I saw them around the same time. I think when I when I decided I was old enough... When I was about 15, I watched them back to back and as I did last week. And uh, yeah. And you were still pretty scared, huh? Yeah. <laughs> really, scared. really scared. How about you, Vicky? Um, I watched Alien first and I was, uh, I was far too young. I was uh, on my little portable telly in my bedroom. And I think there must have been some screaming because then a parent came in and said, we're going to turn this off now. And that was at the chestburster scene. And then I was too scared to watch it again. Saw it at university and then watched it again last week. But I, with that sort of 10-year-old fear, like I was just so terrified. And it is really, really scary. And I can't remember when I saw Aliens. I've seen it, but I just don't know. It was just one of those things. It was uh, always there. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, I, I saw Aliens first. Um, I saw it when I was nine years old. My mum let me and my best friend, James Jolly, real name, um, rent a movie each from a video shop and... 
he rented Crocodile Dundee <laughs> and I rented Aliens. And we watched them both. And he was so scared that my mum got into trouble from his mum for letting us watch <laughs> Aliens. But it was, uh, it was a real experience. And she made me watch it because she wanted me to see a strong female character in a film, which I told Sigourney Weaver when I interviewed her for Avatar, and she said, God bless your mum. As if I couldn't love your mum anymore. <laughs> I love your mum. <laughs> and Alien, I didn't watch till much, much later. And like Chris, I'd had a moment from it, not the famous moment of the chessburter, spoilt by a TV show. Do either of you remember First Class, the game show that was on British TV in the 1980s? It was on mm. Friday evenings. It was like University Challenge for school kids. And they used to play video games. It was before Games Master. It was the first time you'd seen video games and they did pop culture questions. Anyway, I can't believe they played this scene out. It's the scene with Dallas in the vents where he swings the torch round and the creature's there. And it, mm. That was on Friday night at about 6pm on BBC Two. Oh, that's messed up. Scared the <laughs> shit out of me. <laughs> But I didn't see Alien properly till much, much later. I've been lucky enough to see Alien twice in the cinema, though, since. When they, uh, when they re-released it with the director's cut in, I think, 2003. And then I also, uh, 10 years ago, maybe, a secret cinema. I went to of Alien, so was that good? Tell me. I know we're not. I know we're not supposed to talk about secret cinema um, or <laughs> the summer once it's finished. Is it all right? Yeah, that's the rule. Yeah, they do say at the time. <laughs> yeah, how long ago was it? Years. Yeah, right. Um, what was it like? What was the setup like? It was fun. It was before they went crazy with the budgets for secret cinema. So it was more just exploring uh, the inside of what seemed like spaceships from the from the movie, and you know there was like a, a poor bloke um, having to pretend to be an android spitting up milk and trying to talk to you <laughs> oh my god that's my worst night i hate milk <laughs> the funny thing is apparently in that scene where ash's head is on the table in home's head is on the table and he does spew up milk in home hated milk and so he hated having to do that scene on the subject of people dressed up as characters from these movies on my old um, xfm breakfast show we once had a guy come in dressed as the alien to promote Alien versus Predator. And we just used to let people up when they came to reception. Right. They were just like, we were looking for content every day. We didn't prep. And there was someone went, there's some PR downstairs for Alien versus Predator. They got a guy dressed as an alien. Do you want them on the show? We're like, buzz them up now. <laughs> so he comes in and the PR goes, um, one thing, he can't talk on air because it ruins the image. I'm like, it's a radio show. So I ignore them. And like, this guy's there and I'm like, so, how are you doing? Who is it under there? And he goes, Andy. <laughs> so I've got an alien on the show going, and my name's Andy. I'm like, do you enjoy this? And he's like, I'm an actor, no. It's really bloody hot in here. <laughs> All right, let's get into the movies. Who had what? I have got Alien. Correct. All right, Chris, take us away. Sci-fi classic Alien revolves around a huge, fearsome, lethal killing machine. But enough about Ellen Ripley as the real stars of the deadly sexual organs masquerading as movie monsters and triggering Freudian nightmares in any who dare watch, and proving that, in space and on Amazon, no one can hear you stream. <laughs> That's like a joke in search of a format. Yeah. You know I mean? <laughs> I've crossed it out about four times, and I've not thought, sod it, I'm going to say it. I'm not sure if it's a joke. I had missed you guys until this moment. <laughs> We've been fine. <laughs> <laughs> it was an intro in need of an ending. <laughs> Five, four, three, 
All right, then. Alien, Chris. Yeah. Where do you want to start? Well, we, we, we talked about this the other day. We, we both got the Adrian, uh, the Adrian, the Alien Quadrilogy. Yes. Did you get stuck into it? Or did you, knowing that I'd, I think I told you, I've watched, the th- I've watched both three hour documentaries on these discs. Did you bother? I have trouble with the word quadrilogy existing. Yeah. Um, yes. So that already put me off. And then I thought, oh, Chris has done the work. So <laughs> no, I <Yeah>. didn't. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll do a little bit of the background. Okay. Uh, back to our old friend Dan O'Bannon mm-hmm. from the Dark Star episode. Mm-hmm. And this came out of him not being particularly happy with Dark Star. He wanted to make, he wanted the film to have a scary alien and they ended up with... <laughs> not a beach ball. A comedic <laughs> beach ball. And so, um, but he was also suffering from Crohn's disease, Dan O'Bannon. And he described that as like having something growing inside you trying to get out. And so the fact he wasn't happy with Dark Star and the fact that he suffered from this disease is where, is what gave birth, effectively, to Star Beast. Mm which is what Alien was initially called. Was there another script before then called Memory? Before he called it Starbeast, he had another script called Memory, which he hadn't developed into Alien, but was about astronauts waking from cryosleep, being asked by a mysterious other force, the company in this instance, to land on a planet and not knowing why. But that's as far as he got at that point. Exactly. And I think the success of um, Jaws and then Star Wars... I think he saw an angle there. Let's combine Jaws and Star Wars. They really pitched it there. <laughs> Him and Ronald Suchet uh, walked around going, it's Jaws in space. And when you hear, I mean, the comparison I always draw at that point is the fact that in Jaws, Brody goes, smile, you son of a bitch. And at the end, <laughs> Ripley goes, I got you, you son of a bitch. I'm like, yeah, I mean, it really is. <laughs> uh, but so much of the inspiration for this comes from uh, Jodorowsky's Dune. Now, this is a documentary that is on... Uh, Amazon, and I do urge anyone to seek out if you're interested in the filmmaking process or just the most bonkers story of the of the making of a movie that never happened. But Jodorowsky is this surreal filmmaker who who spent the best part of a decade trying to make a movie of Dune, and the people he had on board that he was collaborating with were Pink Floyd, Salvador Dali, Mick Jagger, and Orson Welles. <laughs> These were all involved in this film in some different capacity. <laughs> Um, Dan O'Bannon joined them to help work on the script, and that's where he met H.R. Geiger. And so uh, they got on really well. They spent six months hanging out, sharing designs and story ideas. And the movie went nowhere. June never got made because it was just, it was too bonkers a concept, to be honest. But if you look at the artwork, that, that book, the, the book <laughs> of art from June went round Hollywood and there are scenes exactly in Star Wars, in Terminator, in Alien that are, are ripped from that. So Jodorowsky says to this day, like, I feel like my film was made, mm. my Dune. It's just popped up in everyone else's movie. I don't think you're ever allowed to complain that people said, we're not going to make it, it's too bonkers. If at any point on the set of your movie you're going, uh, Mick, me awesome, awesome, <laughs> Mick. At that point you've got to go, this probably isn't going to see the light of day. Salvador. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, a hell of a, it's a hell of a documentary. But anyway, so that's how O'Bannon and Geiger met up. And then that's how eventually... Once Ridley Scott came on board, he saw the H.R. Geiger designs, which is where this all really came to life. Yeah, I think Dan O'Bannon described them as disturbing and yet beautiful. But he does say also that he did steal a lot of elements from other sci-fi for Alien. He says, his quote is, I didn't steal Alien from anybody. I stole it from everybody. (laughs) And there are moments from The Thing from Another World in there, Forbidden Planet... And one that I will say, but I can't claim to have seen something called Planet of the Vampires, 
where it's a scene in which the crew of a spaceship discover a giant skeleton of an alien. Haven't seen it, so that is just me repeating something I've read. So the script got rewritten by Walter Hill and uh, David Giller, who were the producers on the project. And then for the last sort of 40 years, there's been arguments over who actually should get the credit for writing this film. Um, they added the robot, they changed the names, they turned it into what they call truck drivers in space. Yeah, something that actually was peaked in 1996 with the Stephen Dorff, Dennis Hopper movie Space Truckers. Which you love to mention. Because <laughs> it's, it's directed by Stuart Gordon. I know someone who's in that, who what? we might be able to get on the show what? when she's in uh, London. Okay, okay, deep breaths, Alex. Someone from the film Space Truckers, directed by the man who directed Robot Jocks, may be in this room. Yeah, Bar- Barbara Crampton, who's also uh, the woman in Reanimator by Stuart Gordon. Yeah, it's. I mean, Space Truckers is my favourite. No, okay. Robot Jocks is my favourite than Space Truckers. <laughs> She's not in that one. Well, okay. Anyway. Okay, I feel Remember that we on. spend an inordinate <laughs> amount of time on this podcast talking about Robot Jocks. Because yet- of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm to blame. Um, but yes, the uh, Dan O'Bannon ended up with the uh, screenwriting credits, so. and still hates the fact. Well, I don't know whether uh, you can't say still because certainly Dan O'Bannon's passed away. But he does. Uh, he did say at the time that he felt that uh, the element of the android Ash's story was completely unnecessary, and it was his uh, partner Ronald Suchet who actually said it's one of the best things in the movie, and the whole idea was from Walter Hill and David Geiler. And apparently they wrote on the front of the script, uh, the crew is unisex and all parts are interchangeable for men or women. Which is brilliant. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, according to the Beast Within documentary, it was Alan Ladd who said we should make um, Ripley, the hero, a woman. Um, which was obviously the right thing to do. Um, you know, he's the head of a studio. Alan Ladd uh, Jr. was the head of Fox at that point. Which is, I guess, in the period that this was made, it's pretty forward thinking for the head of a studio to go, I want the lead to be a woman. Although, that and said, 1978, Halloween, and this was a haunted house movie in space, a slasher movie in space, we had just seen Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. Well, Ridley Scott said the reason he took it on was because he wanted to do the Texas Chainsaw Massacre of sci-fi mm. movies, <laughs> yeah. which I think is a lovely quote. But I guess in addition to it being a woman, it wasn't just that it was a woman, it was the least well-known member of the cast. Yeah. So it was the pers- the last person you would expect. Yeah, and if you went to see this film in 1979, you wouldn't be expecting her to be the last person no. standing. Yeah. No, because it's it brilliant. It also sets up Tom Skerritt, Dallas, as yeah, yeah. potentially the hero of yeah. the piece. So, I mean, we as I say, we could talk forever about the background, but let's get into the movie, shall we? Mm-hmm. And yeah. right from the word go, like the way the word alien is revealed... Is something magical about that? Like, I feel like you think, oh, I've not seen that before. Yeah. Well, you have because it looks like a vagina. (laughs) (laughs) What does? What does? Let me remind you when I watched Alien and I still didn't know what a vagina looked like. And I think you're overestimating how many vaginas I've seen. (laughs) (laughs) And also, I would also be terrified if a vagina opened up and revealed a bright light from within. I don't know what I'd do. How would you know? Probably, Probably climb into it like a portal. Or five letters of the alphabet. (laughs) (laughs) Would you ever find a woman with A and L tattooed on one thigh, then her vagina in the middle, (laughs) and the rest of the letters on her other thigh, reading left to right? You can find a woman for anything, can't you? (laughs) 
don't even know what that means. <laughs> so, no, genuinely, I, I actually hadn't clocked that. So is even the wording supposed to look vagina-like? To me, it yeah, looks yeah. like a cervix opening. Okay. For birth. Yeah, yeah. And that, I mean... Obviously, all the way through this film, stuff like that is thrown in. Yeah, I don't know in. if you know, but I'm a registered gynaecologist. So <laughs> that's, that's actually what it looks Which like. Which why we're so lucky to have you. I I, I'm so busy, and yet I make time. And the amount of STDs in London has gone up since you started doing this podcast. Uh, and I think there are no words for seven minutes. I, I did a bit of timing on these films because I was just, I was, all, I was interested in how much silence or, or non-dialogue there is. And there is so little spoken word in both of these films that I... I love that aspect of both of them. Uh, we're told the Nostroma is a commercial towing vehicle with a crew of seven and a cargo of mineral ore on its way back to Earth. I like the design of it because of that combination of retro and modern, the mm. way they've designed it, means it just doesn't hasn't dated. Yeah. It doesn't look like something from the 70s. I was going to say, on both these films, and I think it's a testament to both James Cameron and Ridley Scott, neither film has dated as much as other films from the same time period, as far as sci-fi goes, at least. And we've got our blue-collar workers waking, waking up, and just as a crew, I love them. Their, their beer, their cigarettes, their porn, their arguments, like they feel like a group of people that know each other. Maybe they've been doing a podcast for the best part of nine months. They, it feels like a lived-in world of people who like and dislike each other. The only thing mm. that does that is the smoking, isn't it? There's just so much smoke. Do you know yeah. what I mean? In a spaceship as well. Yeah, Where's no, that going? There's nowhere. Well, there's not fresh air, is there? So they wake up, yeah. they have a fag. They've yeah. always got a cup of tea and a fag. It's like Someone a student house. Someone crack a window. <laughs> oh, shit. It's, um, yeah, it's... It's great how old they are as well. I think um, mm. the fact that a movie like this made today, that crew would be younger yeah. and much more beautiful. Although I still think of them as very old. Do you think we're about the same age as them? I think oh. Sigourney Weaver was 29. So. <laughs> so, so I'm exactly the same age as oh, Sigourney sorry. <laughs> But those blokes I always thought were very old. I bet we're about the same age. As <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, John Hurt was 39. So Oh my God. Yeah, was I, he? he was. He yeah. looks ancient. I know. I think they make a point of saying that. I think Why? Ridley Scott points out, it's like, he's great because he's 39, but he looks a lot older. <laughs> it's like, sorry, John, didn't realise you were in the room. I guess there are some actors that always look, have always looked Craggy, old. I suppose. Unlike us. Yeah, it's a strange moment, though, because obviously John Hurt does look quite old. Mm. I'll, I'll save it because it's one of the changes I'd make. So I won't do it now, but there is a moment where I'm like, no, John Hurt in this film. I'll leave that hanging there. We'll come back Great. to it. Yeah. Uh, and just as they're relaxing into their uh, waking, um, they receive a transmission, which they have to go and intercept. They don't know if it's an SOS. They don't know if it's human. But there's a clause in their contracts that's saying... Um, Possible intelligent life must be investigated or they'll forfeit their fees. Yeah. And so we are then onto the alien yeah. planet. Just before we leave the crew behind, I, I will say this. Ridley Scott talks about how he likes actors who know what they're doing, or at least he's not really an actor's director. And I did... I um, watched some behind the scenes stuff. I don't know if it's on the quadrilogy. I felt like I'd seen it before. I basically, for some reason, because my DVDs are in storage now because I had too many, I got it again on Amazon and it came with bonus features, which I think are just pared down documentary stuff. But a lot of them, uh, the crew talk about uh, working with Scott and how he basically didn't give them any direction. Yeah. He sort of left them to their own devices. And I remember interviewing him for Exodus. Remember the Ridley Scott from Exodus? with Christine Bale and Joel Edgerton. And I was sort of talking to him. I was like, um, 
So, you know, what sort of direction do you give like someone like Christian Bale on a film like this? What were you asking from them in terms of the performance? And he said, I don't hire actors that I need to direct. I expect them to come to set to know what they're doing so I can concentrate on every other element of the film. <laughs> and I was like, good on you, Ridley Scott, for saying that. He also said, wasn't the last time we met the counsellor? And I went, yes, it was. Yeah, it was. He went, they fucking went for me on that one, didn't they? <laughs> He does. He's a, these are two directors who speak their mind. If yeah. you ever get a chance to speak to either of them, they're they're brilliant in that respect. Um, so the alien planet is stunning, isn't it? The the set, the 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 walls that look like they're made of bones, the eggs that look organic, the the big vaginas and penises everywhere. <laughs> Before we get onto vaginas and penises, the sound design when yeah. they step outside of the shuttle is so scary. That whole thing, the wind and the the hostility of mm. the planet they land on, LV-426, is, it gives me a chill just thinking about it. That was a moment when I remember being absolutely terrified watching this because film. Of the, because it's barren, but mm. obviously it's not, because there's so much life being made there. Do you see? Do you see what I mean? I think I'm mm. latching on to the yeah. subtext. Barren. Yeah, right. it's barren. barren. Yeah, it's what you, you know, it's a cruel word used to describe infertility yeah. you're barren okay. we are on the same page yeah okay you look so yeah. nervous there's <laughs> nothing to worry about i'm not always i'm not setting you up for a big <laughs> big pregnancy trap <laughs> no that's something else <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> wrong man shit these pregnancy traps she's at it again <laughs> i love the fact you've trademarked it <laughs> uh <laughs> the vpt let me tell you how to do it <laughs> Uh, uh, and then I, I will say that being in a cinema, the reveal of the space jockey was even more breathtaking when it's, you know, 30 odd feet high. Mm. It's just... Well, do you know how they made it look so big as well? Because the suits <laughs> that the crew had to wear... Do I know this? You probably yeah, do. You probably Is do. This, it's, it's children. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not just any children. So... Like, a lot of the crew, especially John Hurt, a lot of the cast complained about those suits. Well, the three of them that were wearing them complained because there was no way for the CO2 to escape from the initial design. So they were gradually suffocating while they were wearing them. They were incredibly hot. And, like, John Hurt had to be, like, carried off sometimes and hosed down with water like because it was so hot. Anyway, Ridley Scott didn't do anything about it until he needed to make the... Uh, the pilot, the what's he called again? The, the big skeleton. Space jockey. The space jockey, sorry. Yeah. Look bigger. So he puts his kids in mini versions of the suits <laughs> to make it look bigger. Both his kids faint. Yeah, they passed out. At that point, he goes, we need to put some cooling in these <laughs> yeah. suits for, for our cast. Now it's affecting my family. <laughs> <laughs> Things are different. Maybe it's because John Hurt's not actually 39. He's actually 79. And that's why he passed out in the suits. Or he, he, he looked... 20 before it started <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he just aged really quickly like the Nazi at the end of the last crusade <laughs> he chose poorly because of all the breath <laughs> uh, but once we reach the room full of eggs is the whole of the plot of this film um, completely reliant on that egg opening and him then standing over it and having a good look inside yeah it is isn't it <laughs> what, what's their game plan I mean I know that it, it's explained in Aliens that they lie dormant or it's explained at some point they lie dormant but then what's the point of that as a sort of propagation strategy? Mm. And he does get his face right in there, kind of asking for it, to be honest. If he'd been sensible and prodded it a bit with a stick, yeah. no problem. I mean, 
you know, we all make fun of Prometheus and the bit where... Mm, Sean um, Harris. Ray, Sean. Rafe Spall. Right, Rafe Spall. I, Rafe Spall's the one who, at the start, is terrified of going in to this alien structure. And then when that weird sort of semi-facehugger eel thing appears, he's like, hello, <laughs> who are you? Come here, you cute little thing, dead. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. right, it's a bit like this. If you see an egg with an alien egg with something moving inside it, mm. you don't go, that looks interesting. You don't put your face over it. <laughs> you might put your hand over it at best. But he is sort of set up. His character, Kane, is naturally inquisitive before then. He's the one pushing forward when they go into the ship. He's the one going, I'm going to go down here on a rope. I want to go. I want to investigate. So he is a, you know, a, a keen, keen man when it comes to prodding eggs. So his face is being hugged um, and they want to bring him back on board the ship. But Ripley says no. She's very, very uh, specific on this. Mm. They need to go through quarantine. Uh, Interesting point. Mm hmm. This, I think, features in both films. She n is not surprised uh, as much. She's like, at no point does she go, an alien organism, which gives rise to this theory throughout both movies, that even at this point, in Alien, human life has encountered other alien species. Yeah. Because they have this whole... Yeah, there's no... You don't have to do the, oh my God, there's aliens. Yes. Right, yeah. Sure. It's yeah. just different kinds of aliens. It is, mm -hmm. yeah. And we'll get onto it more in Aliens because there's a lot more about that in that. He does a lot more world building. But even in this, she's like, there's a procedure yeah. when you encounter an alien organism mm. so you can't come in and then Ash bloody opens Hatch, doesn't he? But this is when we discover that the, the blood is made of acid, which is the ultimate defence mechanism. Uh, and then we are into the chest bursting scene. So... Uh, John Hurt, effectively. Hello, my babies. Hello, my darlings. Hello, my ragtime gal. I love his cameo in Spaceballs. <laughs> <laughs> um, I watched this with uh, someone who hadn't seen Alien before and <gasps> didn't know what was coming. For this pod? Yeah. Oh, my God. What happened? Um, she was terrified <laughs> when it happened. And in all honesty, she then laughed yeah. when it ran off. Mm. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Genuine laughter because like, it looks ridiculous. It's like a fucking like... Muppet running off, like Gonzo <laughs> running off. Yeah, okay. So that, that told, because I, I watched that and think that does look ridiculous, but maybe in 79 that looked cutting edge and it, you're still so frightened. But yeah, that has dated if you're <laughs> watching it for the first time. Just in my. You probably uh, know this fact. I don't know whether it's one of those famous movie land rumors or not, but Ridley Scott apparently did not tell a lot of the cast what was going to happen which Veronica Cartwright especially, I think, her face when the blood packs go off, she is in genuine shock because she didn't know that was going to happen. Yeah, they, they kind of tell their side of that story, the actors do, because it has gone into Hollywood legend. And, and as someone who vaguely knows how films are made, you think, well, how could they have done that without these actors knowing? Are you taking a massive chance on this one <laughs> this one go? So they said, we all, we'd all read the script. We knew the chestburster was coming. We'd visited the creature shop and saw this little penis with teeth. <laughs> um, they just didn't know it would be capped with explosives and it would splash blood on them. So that is the truth to that right sequence and yeah you, if you do uh they've got sort of some of the behind the scenes footage of veronica cartwright and um she stacks it she <laughs> she hits her she steps back like that and she and she falls back over a stool <laughs> with her like legs go up in the air um so yeah you know to, to say that it was real the reaction that was real with her especially she didn't know she was going to hit the deck apparently she didn't like um how weak her character was she described it as not liking the emotional weakness of lambert but nevertheless accepted the role because uh she was convinced by the filmmakers it was the she represented the audience's yeah. fears 
and what the reflection of the audiences was feeling. But she actually read for Ripley, which she obviously didn't get. No, and, she didn't. And well, I, I, that's my big fact. Chris has got some trivia. How about this one? Sigourney Weaver plays Ripley. I'm out. Uh, but do you think that scene still holds power today? I think if you listen to it without, listen to it and don't watch it, mm. and then it's even more terrifying because he's gurgling and like wailing, and it's the sound is amazing. the The little scuttly penis teeth thing is quite amusing. But if you just listen to and you can mm. you can hear how much that would hurt and be terrifying. But you know, um he's peckish, he's pregnant, deal with it. Yeah. It's the <laughs> bit where and I only noticed it on this rewatch, where his hand is still jerking after yeah. he's dead and you can see it in the background twitching a couple of times. Never noticed that before. I don't know. I do think the sound of the penis with teeth disappearing off the table, it goes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. I, I interviewed John Hurt a few years ago, and we were doing kind of a career retrospective. And I, and I said to him about halfway through, "Are you sick of talking about Alien yet?" And he said, um, "He said no. I'm kind of come to terms with it." Um, he said, "I did the Elephant Man, and I could." He said, "I could win five Oscars, and when I die, this is what they'll talk about." And he said, "It's nice to have that moment in your career." And it's true, isn't it? I mean, he will be remembered not only for looking older than his years. <laughs> I ended up talking to him. I believe he was filming Hercules at the time. And I think they were filming in Budapest. He played Hercules. That no. unusual. He was in... <laughs> Shut up. I never watched that one. Oh, you know, the rock movie, Hercules. Yeah, yeah. And um, he was in it. Um, the one where he famously had a lot to say about Brett Ratner afterwards. <laughs> and uh, was asked to not do the junket, as far as I remember. <laughs> anyway... Uh, I got talking to him in a in a restaurant, and I think I remember speaking to him. I don't know whether I've mixed my stories, whether this was in a joke. I remember asking him in a very candid manner about being in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and him him going very aware of what that movie was and the reputation it had and what he thought of it. He went, "Look, if Spielberg asks you to be in a movie, I'm not going to say no, am I?" And that was what he had mm. to say on that. <laughs> And then we're into Harry Dean Stanton's scene chasing Jonesy around oh, the yeah. spacecraft. Do you have some stuff to say about Jonesy? Well, it's, it's later. It's later. It's later. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and that's when it turns into sort of almost like a haunted house movie. Yeah. In terms of their, the, the, the crew creeping around the spacecraft and being bumped off uh, one by one. Um, but we also get the subplot involving Ash, who are... Uh, Paid by Ian Holm, who, uh, again, I was watching this with someone who hadn't seen it before. They were very quick to, to, to spot how shady Ash was right from... But he is. <laughs> he is. I mean, I, 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 he's... To me, re-watching it now, I'd argue that he is up there with one of cinema's great villains. Mm. That performance and that character, he is, like, much more terrifying, I think, than the alien. Mm. Kind of representing corporate America... Mm. Corporate greed, because the idea is that they, they need to find the specimen and bring it back to Earth for analysis and, and to turn and to weaponize it, essentially. Uh, and we find out that the, the crew considerations were secondary; they're expendable. And um, yeah, so there's a, there's a there's a great sequence in which Ash and Ripley uh, fight each other. And okay, yeah. Mm. Are we doing this now? Because this is in my bit section. Do you, but we can talk about this now. Why not? Okay. What do you make of that sequence, Vicky? 
think it's um, very interesting that a woman has emerged as a leader of this crew and the way that the villain tries to kill her is by stuffing something in her mouth. Mm-hmm. Not bad, just but it says a lot. Like, it's not an accident that, that those are the choices. However, I was distracted watching that scene again because there was a picture of... I was like, are they fried eggs on the wall? What does that mean? <laughs> but they are, aren't they? Have you noticed in the corner where he tries to kill her, mm-hmm. they, there's porn. The boobs. There's lots of boobs, yeah. <laughs> okay. I saw the boobs. I was like, okay, fine, boobs. <laughs> like, like, she'd never seen boobs before. No, 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 those aren't fried eggs, Victoria. Those are boobs. <laughs> no, there's a picture of fried chicken's eggs. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't take it because I was like, oh, what are you trying to say about eggs and <laughs> chickens? So, yeah. <laughs> I'd, f- I'd think that would work. I mean, the idea of like, it's already a weird scene. Throwing some chickens and eggs into the mix, I'd be like, this is even weirder. Yeah. Ridley Scott goes, the bit where Ash goes, peculiar is his definition of that scene. Okay. I think it's doubly weird. It's like, I think it's a brilliant scene um, because on the one hand, there is the let's uh, to take the sexual aspect out of it, which Ridley Scott talks about. Just the idea of killing someone by ramming a rolled-up magazine down their throat really is weird. super, super weird. Because he's strong, so he doesn't need to use. He could just strangle it. I mean, it's a bit weird thing to say, but he could. So, which goes on to what Ridley Scott says. His big question is: Are androids, you know, do they have sexual desires slash weirdness, and is that part <laughs> of Ash being a bit sort of like confused about? you know, what he is and having some sort of creepy, murderous sexual desire. Cool. Do they dream of electric sheep? Mm. Or boinking them. Um, you were... <laughs> I was thinking about this this morning. I was listening to an episode and you kept saying boinking and I meant to pick <laughs> you up me. on it. That was me. Oh, is it you? <laughs> yeah, Do you not think was... it's a bit, a bit Chris Evans in the 90s? Can we not... <laughs> Can we stop doing it? I've never said that word before no, last no, week. Well, and Chris I said Evans it twice. Yeah. I said it twice. I don't... What would you... Tell me what you'd prefer and we'll go with it. What was the sentence? Um, boinking electric sheep. Well, well, you could say shagging because of the alliteration. That would be nice. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. But in general, if it wasn't sheep... Oh, well, let's just deal with it on a case-by-case basis. Okay, fine, okay. fine, fine, sure. Uh, you talked about your fried eggs just now. Uh, when he <laughs> is lying there with his severed head and he delivers that amazing speech, uh, that is, he's surrounded by milk, caviar, pasta and marbles. Marbles? That's how, that's how that effect was created. <laughs> yeah. I love hearing about how lo-fi so much of the making of these movies was. Yeah, do you know what was in the... You know when they're di- he's dissecting the face hugger to see what it's made of? Do you know what's in there to make it look so fleshy? Uh, I do, but now you tell, tell us. It's oysters and clams. Yuck! <laughs> and is that when it kind of flutters? Yeah, there's a... That's Ridley can... Scott's hands in there, fluttering, his oh, own hands. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it really works. It looks disgusting. Uh, but yeah, then Ash delivers that amazing speech, uh, just saying how much he admires the alien creature and says, you have my sympathies. And it's just... Oh, what a way to go out of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is a great speech. Unfortunately, it's also the the worst scene in the movie. Uh, it's the change I'd make. I mean, we'll come to it, but uh, we'll come to it. Uh, but then that is about it. We have then 45 minutes of, of kills, essentially. Um, it, it's noticeable the film cuts away for most of them. I think the chestburster is maybe the only time we see a graphic kill in this film. Okay, so I have a point on that, because watching the making of, there's a lot more blood. You see that those scenes have been pared down from how graphic they were originally shot, which works most of the time. But there's one scene when Lambert is killed, and 
the alien's tail does that kind of creepy thing where it goes between her legs yeah. and up her back. Now, yeah. in the it seems to me, although it was never added in the director's cut, that it there's more to that, and you see the tail sort of mm. attack her, and it's less suspicious or less sort of like weird and creepy that the alien is like doing something you know a bit odd mm -hmm. when but they cut it so it feels odd mm. Mm. it reminds me of the infamous tree scene in the original evil dead that mm. sam raimi's embarrassed about sam raimi is embarrassed about uh, but then we have got kill after kill after kill until we get to uh ripley being the final girl um Stripping down to her underwear. You can see her bum crack, which I was found so distracting. <laughs> Just like, it's one thing to be in your knickers, but why, who said on set... Um, Sigourney, could you just pull those down ever so slightly? <laughs> and she'd be like, why? <laughs> or just cause, because <laughs> I like it. Yeah, they're not the most flattering pants either, are no, they? No, and I've, so, you know, a lot has been said about, is, is she being sexualised or not because she doesn't look good? And it's like, well, that's kind of, fuck's <laughs> sake. If that's where the argument is at, that's, I've, I have no time for this. But, um, she still is in her pants. And is she, is she in her pants because she's going to get comfy because she's going to bed and she can relax? Yeah. Or is she in her pants because someone was like, fuck, we haven't done this bit yet. <laughs> so she needs to be in her knickers. But then the bum crack, that's too much. Why do do think... First of all, that's uncomfortable. They don't fit. Yes. Right. Second of all, why? Like, why are we seeing her bum? So you're saying at that point, it wasn't just a great take and they went, oh, Sigourney, we actually saw a little bit of your bum cracking there. Do you want to do it again? <laughs> and no. she went, was it good? And they're like, it was great. That she's like, fine. No, no, Which because, might have happened. No, because all she does is lean over a monitor. She leans over and you see her. Listen, a... I'm not an actor, but you can lean over a monitor in a variety of different ways. That could have oh, been her right. best lean. As an actor, you know. Yeah, and I speak I as not an actor. Yeah, As yeah. an actor, you know when you've done the best lean over a monitor. I suppose. You wouldn't want to compromise that, would you? Right. For a little bit of crack. How much crack? I think it's about... That's the question she should have asked. Two inches? No, I wasn't asking. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Rhetorical. Um, Apologies. And then if you watch the... You really noticed that crack. I did. Two, it's two inches. If you, if you watch the... One inch? Fine. Have that crack that out. That happens to anyone. But mm. two inches, mm. someone's told you to pull those down. I will say, of this film, the other one is... Fail you've literally like focused in on the cracks more than Chris and I. I wonder why that is. Oh, because <laughs> you love the female form. Do you not? No. Actually, you know what? Let's not get into this. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. That's my fault. Stupid. So uh, this whole sequence is, if you're watching the original cut, uh, from, I'm going to go from actually before she got on the sh uh, uh, down to her underwear. It's, it's 50 minutes of pretty much pure silence. But if you watch the director's cut, which I believe Alex did, I did. Did you watch the director's cut? Was it available on Amazon for £3.49? <laughs> yes. Mm, don't know. Well, then I did. I don't know. Um, you've got the scene okay. with uh, Dallas Cocooned. Haven't you? Which gives us... Oh, no, so I didn't see that. But oh, I know about that. Yeah, and yeah. I was expecting to see that. Yeah, um, Ridley Scott thought that that scene slowed the film down. Um, and so that's why he cut it out. And it's interesting, he's the one then decided to put it back in when they made changes. They took out some of the more obvious man in suit moments. And his reasoning <laughs> for putting it back in, he said, yes, it does slow the climax down a little bit, but it's a pretty good scene. Yeah. It's a great scene. Now, I think Ridley Scott can be a bit cantankerous. Yes. Here's my question. Did the director's cut of Alien come out after Aliens? Yes. Well, I think he's done it because he's <laughs> gone, 
Oh, so James Cameron's <laughs> created a queen alien and he thinks yeah. that's the life cycle. Let me go back and put this scene in and tell you that's the life cycle I had in the original where alien warriors cocoon their victims who are then slowly metamorphosized into the eggs mm. and their biology becomes the biology of a facehugger. It's a brilliant scene. It's a disgusting scene. He put it in to cause problems. That's an excellent theory, and I very much enjoy the pettiness of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you, you can believe he I would can. do that. Because he I always, can. after Aliens, Alien 3, he always, when he came around to making Prometheus, was like, I don't know why no other filmmaker ever thought to investigate the space jockey. It's been sitting there. He didn't do that pun. I'm having that. It's been sitting there <laughs> waiting for someone. That's why I wanted to do Prometheus. That's why I wanted to go back to it. When he talked about Neil Blomkamp's idea to do an Alien 3 that ignored everything after Aliens, which was going to be a direct follow-on, Michael Bean with Ripley, and it never happened. And Ridley Scott openly said they didn't have a script. That's why it didn't happen. It wasn't just because I was making my Alien movies and I didn't want another one. Didn't have a script. He's a very honest person. He put that scene with Dallas back in going, kill me, because <laughs> James Cameron created a Queen Alien. End of that bit. End of that bit. <laughs> uh, so we're at the end of the film. Uh, satisfying conclusion, did you find it, with the um, alien getting zapped out of the uh, spaceship? Apart from it looks like a man, mm. yeah, when yeah. it falls backwards. But yeah. And it's also tricky. I'd seen Aliens first, and it's exactly the same death uh, yeah. for the mm. alien, and it looks a shit ton better in Aliens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. As you said, uh, it does look like a bloke in a suit. Yeah, and that is uh, six foot ten inch uh, Belagi Bidajo, who was a apparently he was a graphic designer from Nigeria that they just spotted in a pub. Yeah, and said, "You look good to us." Can I uh, ask? Oh, sorry, do you want a bit more on that? No, I'll just say it was his only screen credit, and sadly, he died in nineteen ninety two of sickle cell anemia. Oh. Um, you know the bit where he's in his suit and he is behind the pipes and she's mm. in the shuttle and <laughs> she's figuring something out with the control pad and then she realises the alien is between the pipes. Now, it obviously builds tension incredibly when she sort of backs off and has time to get in the suit and work out that she's going to open the airlock. Why doesn't... It's the only time the alien doesn't immediately yeah. go, I'm going to kill you because yeah. that's what I've been doing throughout the film. Is it just like the filmmaker's prerogative, Ridley Scott's prerogative to sort of go, well, we need to build tension here, so it's going to hide behind the pipes for a while. Why doesn't it immediately jump out? out? Yeah, It is annoying, isn't it? Because Mm. you've either got that thing where as a a monster, it doesn't bother you until you move, like lots of monsters, or it does. So which is it? Yeah. It it is frustrating, actually. I hadn't thought of that. Good point. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Vicky. Um, any more trivia or should we get onto the bits? Let's get onto the, oh, one more bit of trivia that I very, very, very quickly, uh, Ron Cobb, the concept artist for this. I've always wondered, uh, where Wayland Utani, mm. which is on t-shirts around the world, which is one of the most often mentioned corporate names in the history of sci-fi came from. And he designed it and he came up with it because he wanted it to be a business alliance between Britain and Japan. He wanted something to put on all the props, and he got it from the British Leyland Motor Corporation and his Japanese neighbour, Utani. And that's oh. where Wayland Utani, that we all know wow. and loathe because they're evil, comes from. He also did a pass at the monster design before Geiger, and it looked like the creature from the fly. <laughs> Very oh. insect-like. Okay, uh, Vicky, what was your favourite scene? 
So I do, I really love when they land on the planet and you've got the, the big alien chair, the space jockey accentuates like the huge spaces and the vastness of space as space. And then you know what's coming later, which is even though you're in the vastness of space, you can't escape this one thing. And I think that works really well because it's one thing. But I think, oh, so this is a little thing that I've noticed and it's my favourite scene now. If I've got this wrong, I apologise. So when they uh, when the crash landing on the planet, right, and Dallas is still the leader at this point, but there's something's gone wrong. There's been a big crash, right? So it's starting, things are starting to like break apart. And the shot is Dallas telling people what to do, and he's got his hand over his head like he's sort of thinking. Like it doesn't work on a podcast, but imagine you've just got your arm over your head. I can corroborate. Vicky has her arm yeah, over her head like this, right and now. he goes like, "Oh, like you a know, teapot, fix it or whatever he says." And Sigourney Weaver's in the shot as Ripley. And at this point, she's still whatever she is, second in command or whatever. And she mirrors him completely. So the shot is him in front like this, being the boss. And she's just sat behind him. And she just puts, she's just got the exact same um, body language, mm-hmm. which is the, the beginning of her emergence as the leader. Wow. I hope it's not wrong. I, d- I didn't notice it, so I can't confirm. But if that's true, that's great. If it's not true, it should go in, shouldn't it? Because it's a good idea. <laughs> so. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Here we go. I was waiting for... Another Ridley, great idea from me. Ridley, <laughs> yeah. Ridley, I got a point to make. Yeah, such a good idea. <laughs> if you're ever doing rewrites, <laughs> Alex, uh, my best scene. Uh, are we taking as read that the greatest scene in the movie is the chestburster scene? I think so. Yeah, and ignoring that, yeah, because that's the most iconic scene in cinema history. So I'm going with. Oh, we already mentioned it. It's um, Ash when he goes in Ridley Scott's words, peculiar. That mm. whole moment where he sweats milk from his head and what? he's that looking in Hom's eyes. The Ash attack. Weirdly, after the chestburster scene, it's the magazine down the throat that is the one thing I remember most distinctly from this. Or the bit where the only moment Dallas gets scared. That's the other bit where he finally cracks when he's in the vents and he's like, I want to get the hell out of here. And you're like, oh my God, he's scared. One of those. Um, I had the chestburster. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but if we're not allowed to have the chestburster, I'll have when Sigourney Weaver puts her hand on her head. God, that's a bit odd. Is it done on purpose? I, I don't know. I, th- I literally thought he was going, I'll have Sigourney Weaver's crack on display. <laughs> I thought that's where that's he was where... going, so I'm actually quite grateful. Yeah. You're a better person than either of us think you are. <laughs> MVW. Who? Me or V? V. So two things. Um, the this might annoy you because of what you like. Um, the very naturalistic dialogue. Um, <laughs> I love that because you have to listen to understand what's going on. Um, and the sound design when they when they've got transmissions back and forth from the planet to the ship. Uh, the the radios, the transmitters, whatever, don't quite work, and so they crackle and they break up the stream of dialogue. And that just adds to the tension of like this stuff doesn't work. So this stuff isn't going to save you. I thought it was really good. I mean, it's Ripley, isn't it? Like, mm. because uh, Sigourney Weaver, it's, it's a, a career defining role. It's a, a character that we still talk about all the time. It, it is that. Outside that, massive soft spot for Harry Dean Stanton. I think he is wonderful and a really nicely drawn character. And I love the fact that when he auditioned, the first thing he said to Ridley Scott was, I don't like sci fi and I don't like monster movies. And Ridley Scott went, like you on Monday. Yeah. <laughs> it's a thriller. You're hired. Uh, Chris? Mine is the messed up mind of Hans Ruedi Geiger. Mm. So he was a Swiss painter who was obsessed with bio and mechanical. Biomechanoids was what he did a lot of his art around. 
I think his his twisted imagination is what actually elevates Alien from a, a creature feature to some to a proper nightmare. Um, and I think it's quite sad his journey with the Alien films after this. Um, he wasn't asked back for Aliens um, because we'll get onto that. But James Cameron was going to design the Alien Queen, and that was all he really needed. Um, they forgot to credit him on Alien Three. Oh, cool! And so they had to go back for the DVD release. They had to give him a credit for designing this stuff. And then they purposely left him out of Alien 4. They didn't want to work with him. And <laughs> How did that go? <laughs> How did that go? Hey, everyone, this is our design for the newborn. Well, fuck your movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got a quote from him. He says, um, why does Fox not give me the credit I rightfully earned? All I can wish them is an alien breeding inside their chest. <laughs> well, so not bitter. Fox, famously, when they were approached with uh, Geiger's work as the design for the alien went, Absolutely not. Mm. It's so repulsive, it will drive audiences away. And you can see their point, but it was, it was obviously uh, Ridley Scott who pushed it through. He said he, it, they were th- it threatening, beautiful, and the sexual connotations was exactly what he was looking for. So. It was a piece called, the, was it the Necronomicon? The Necronom 4. Necronom 4. But the, the main change he made between his original drawing and the alien we see in Alien was he got rid of the eyes because yep. his original drawing had these bug eyes and he said it was much more terrifying to not have eyes mm. at all. And I think he's absolutely right. That's 100%. why he's him. Uh, Alex, what would you like to change? Uh, the Ash head scene. It's so distracting. Um, and I know um, Ridley Scott wanted to change it as well. The bit where you go from the mould, the prosthetic mm. head of Ash on the desk, and there's yeah, a sort yeah. of someone walks in front of it. Or this, It's an ugly cut anyway. And then it's suddenly Ian Holmes' actual head sticking out of the table. And apparently it's because the, they made the mould and then in the moulding process, it shrank, which is why it's like much smaller. And Ridley Scott said, given the budget, he would have gone back and reshot that, but he couldn't. So that's it. And it's a minor change because it's such a good film. Vicky? Uh, two things. Mm-hmm. I think Lambert is underused. Um, if she's like the counterpoint uh, to Ripley being a very um, head on shoulders, like common sense woman, and she kind of gets herself killed by just not moving out of the way, which is annoying. And oh, yeah. yeah, and she gets bloody Parker killed as well yeah. because he's like, get out of the way. She's <laughs> really frustrated. And she, I understand that she's representing the audience, and of course, everyone would be terrified. But if she was more, you know, when she's like, we should go in the pod, but the pod won't take four, we should draw lots. Like if she acted upon her fears in a more active way, so maybe did something that sabotaged someone later on. I think a scene between Ripley as the the strong leader dealing with a woman who's gone to pieces as two expressions of being a woman in this situation or just being a person in this situation Mm. would have been really interesting. Second of all... um, Ripley gets Jones the cat, puts it in a box, really easy. If you've ever put a cat in a box, it's not that easy. So <laughs> that's what I wanted to say about Jones the cat. That's bullshit. Um, you know, you take your cat to the vet. That's a full two hours chasing a cat around the fucking shed, garden, whatever, trying to tempt it into this box. It doesn't work like that. On the Lambert front, um, the bit where... She meets Ripley for the first time after Ripley had refused to let them on board. Yeah. And she slaps her around the face. Ridley Scott had said to her, really slap her. <laughs> and she terrible. does. And you can see like her Sigourney Weaver's reaction in that moment. It's the one they used. And she really gets a slap in the face because she's like, the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> um, I know it's difficult for directors making decisions for things to do with time and tone and pace. But I'm... I think it's sad that people might experience what Vicky did watching it the last time and not have that Dallas cocoon scene. 
Yeah. Um, it shouldn't have been cut out. Uh, I think it's the most disturbing image in a film that's filled with them. It and is. so, yeah, I would just hope that people watch the director's cut if they get the opportunity. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So and Alien. with that, we are into Aliens. So Aliens was my movie this week. This is where the fun starts, all right? If these two movies, come on. Hey, I'm not saying it's the better movie yet, but (laughs) it is certainly the most fun. Uh, So this week, I was given Aliens, the first movie I ever rented, slash was allowed to rent illegally from Barker's Video Store, uh, (laughs) Barker's Video Store on Street Lane in Leeds in 1987. Big shout out to Barker's Video Store, it closed in the 90s. Uh, and also, big shout out to Leeds for having a road called Street Lane. <laughs> Ran out of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it is the movie I quote most in real life. So, if you're ready, we're in the pipe. Five by five. So she is. Get your light up here. Keep back, don't scare. Movement. Talk to me, Hudson. Uh. I got signals. I got readings in front and behind. There's nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving in. It ain't us. Get me out of there. All right, Aliens. Um, Well, uh, a truly phenomenal sequel. I think I said at the very start of this, one of the greatest movie sequels, if not the most, the greatest movie sequel of all time. Uh, Watched it when I was nine. 
I don't know. Where do you want to start, Chris, with this? I'm deferring to you because you know everything. And I just I would like some guidance in where we begin. I have one story. Do it. James Cameron. And this isn't anywhere. This is a story that was told to me. James Cameron apparently walked into Fox when when they were discussing. <laughs> I know this story. I know yeah. I've told you before, but this <laughs> no, might be. You haven't. Oh, okay. Is this about the S? This is a story I've told you before. <laughs> is it? It is. Yeah. I don't think I think you'd struggle to find this story online. But when that's a challenge. Okay. When I they set that challenge, <laughs> he did. He told us of this us this in the pub about a year ago when we started having talks about this podcast oh, then I got pissed and forgot <laughs> <laughs> anyway let's do the story we've really up too much do it, do so it. it's going to be a first for everyone <laughs> um, uh, apparently after he'd been approached by Fox to make Aliens uh, they'd seen the Terminator they were like this guy's actually pretty good uh, or the script at least for Terminator they brought him in and he walks into the boardroom and there's a blackboard there and he just gets his chalk and he writes alien in big letters on this chalkboard. And then he adds an S at the end to aliens and he draws two straight lines through it to make a dollar sign. And everyone goes, we're sold. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the reason there, was, there, there wasn't a, a sequel quickly is because there's, there'd been a regime change at Fox. And the new regime did not want to do a sequel to uh, the previous team's ideas because but, it hadn't been that financially successful i mean it had that's the thing i i've read that and mm. then you look at the numbers it had been very very successful but like that was, five times its budget or something it made so which was an astonishing it was like 18 million even less was it yeah well it, well it it was originally budgeted at four million and then based on ridley scott storyboards the first movie they they bumped yeah. up to eight million eight million so yeah i mean it was very financially successful but i guess we're at a time when um sequels weren't the norm as well mm. not like they are now where every blockbuster definitely gets a sequel then it was more of an unusual thing star Wars was just getting going mm. um and so it took some time producer david giller uh pitched a cross between southern comfort and the magnificent seven that was his pitch um but they were talking to james cameron because they liked his script for terminator and he had a script now they don't talk about this in the documentary but i found this in an old interview on hot dog we did with him um he had a script called E.T., interestingly, uh, which he then had to change its title. He then changed it to Mother. Okay. And his script was about a platoon of high-tech soldiers, a mother alien, and a climactic battle between the alien queen and a woman in a power loader. So he so had that, this... That was a pre-written script of his. Wow. Uh, the, the big difference was um, it was all taking place on a terraforming complex on Venus. But he, when they asked him to do an outline for Aliens, he just took this script and, and rewrote it using um, the, uh, the the Ripley character and then adding in uh, sort of military in the future, which is something he's obviously was obsessed with and continues to be obsessed with. They, I mean, he designed all the hardware himself, or at least played a huge part in designing the hardware. There's also, though, uh, which is often talked about, the fact that Aliens is an analogy for the Vietnam War. Yes. And how uh, a troop of... Marines with all the equipment as Hudson goes through on the dropship, which I watched the director's cut and I cannot remember which whether that's in the original cut or not, where he's talking about every single piece of weaponry on the dropship. But it's about them going in and a foe that they uh, suddenly realise they completely, for all their technology, have no idea how to deal with. Well, Cameron had just written uh, Rambo First Blood Part 2. Mm. And so it was on his mind already, uh, Vietnam. And I, he wasn't particularly happy with how that panned out when Sylvester Stallone got hold of his script. And so he wanted to tell 
the story he was trying to tell and he was able to do it through this futuristic setting. Um, and so, yeah, there were some bits and pieces behind the scenes where um, he couldn't he couldn't direct it because he was directing the Terminator and then the Terminator got pushed back because of Dino De Laurentiis making Arnold Schwarzenegger do Conan the Destroyer. And basically, through some timing issues, he ended up writing the outline. Then they waited for him for finished Terminator so he could write the script. And then when they saw Terminator, they said, you can direct the movie. Yeah. He often talks about using his time making Terminator as thinking entirely about aliens and what elements he could pull from his shoot on Terminator and learning on Terminator how he could make aliens brilliant. Yes. So time well spent, James Cameron, because <laughs> it is brilliant. Uh, and it sounds like there were a lot of arguments on the set of this one. Uh, some issues between Cameron and Sigourney Weaver, and obviously a lot of issues between Cameron and the British crew. Although even before that, it's worth pointing out that Fox weren't willing to pay Sigourney Weaver uh, yeah. the fee that she required, or she asked for, justifiably, um, to be in this movie. And it was James Cameron who fought for her to be in it, and his argument was, look, I wrote this script believing Ripley was in it and I'm not going to undo my script because you won't pay her that, pay her that, I want her in this movie mm. and she got in the movie. He told the studio he would write a version of the script without her. Oh, did he? And then he uh, got a message to Sigourney Weaver's agent that they were thinking about writing a script version of it without her and that's how it all got sorted uh, out, which he, he never intended to write that right, script. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Playing the game. Hey. Eh? Uh, but yeah... Um, Sigourney Weaver is very anti-guns and she didn't want Ripley to pick up a gun in this film. And so that caused a real <laughs> issue between her and Cameron. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you... Tell me, Sigourney, you don't want to carry a gun. How do you see the last half hour of this movie playing out? Do you, uh, you know, what are you going to use? Bad language? Harsh words. Harsh words! <laughs> Damn it! Damn it! <laughs> you know... When we finish, that's going to tear me apart. I know it is. That's going to tear <laughs> me so, apart. So <laughs> I know. I was like, I could feel it. I'm like, that's not it. That's not it. But you can't pause. Just say it. Fuck! <laughs> Excuse my language. My, uh, my harsh words. But, but Cameron's well known for being somewhat aggressive on his film sets, I guess. Yeah. And the British crew didn't like him from the word go. They all really liked working with Ridley Scott. Um, they didn't like this Canadian who they considered a yank coming in and treating them without the respect they deserved in terms of they wanted to do long lunches at the pub because that's what they were used to doing. Yep. They were used to the tea lady coming round <laughs> every day and taking breaks to do tea. Quite right. And apparently one day the tea lady's uh, tea trolley got uh, smashed up. By him. <laughs> I did not say that <laughs> because no one goes on record as saying that. Oh, sorry. Uh, oh, not him. Not him. But when you said him, you just meant a him. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, it was definitely a man. Yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> and he was encouraged to screen uh, Terminator for the crew so that they could see who, how good he was. Yeah, and, and, and apparently they showed up. They didn't turn up. They didn't turn up. And also, apparently, they were quite. They were negative about Gail Ann Hurd, who was producing it, because yeah. they were like, "Oh, she's only producing it because it's, it's his wife. That's why she got. She don't know what she's doing." Is my generic. British working man, man from that period <laughs> I felt like though the, the, the documentary on aliens does raise some questions about her producing oh uh, does it because there is there are several stories of people nearly getting killed 
on the set of this oh, yeah. one. And she literally has to defend her own safety record <laughs> on this film to camera. And I'm like, something's not going right on this set Wait, if you've got to do that. Is it like the Johnny Depp Amber Heard Australian dogs video where they both Oh my like, God, I forgot about that. <laughs> they both look like they've been kidnapped. They do, don't they? Everything's fine. We are fine here. Don't send help. <laughs> Um, and, but his big point was he wanted it to be less violent than Alien. He said, you don't create fear with gore, you create disgust. I would say it's more violent, um, this film. Mm, not in terms, just less bloodletting. There's more violence on the uh, aliens mm. themselves. But I'm, I'm struggling to think of moments where Marines actually... I mean, the Drake death is particularly nasty, where... Vasquez shoots an alien or someone shoots an oh, alien. Oh, yeah, and he gets burned. He gets sprayed with the acid across his face and for a split second you see all his skin yeah. dissolved off. Well, should we get into the film then? Yeah, I think so. Um, first of all, the start is brilliant. Flashback where the alien is coming out of her and then suddenly she wakes up and she's at the gateway station, which is the closest Ripley ever gets to Earth mm. until the very end of Resurrection, if we have to mention that. And by that point, Earth is... Uh, uh, in quotation marks, a shithole. Um, so at this point, you've got to believe it's still nice because her daughter was died seemingly peacefully down there. It's not a barren wasteland, which is the first scene that is in the director's cut and mm. not in the original. Did you watch the director's cut of this one, V? No, I did not. Okay, so there's a scene in it where she is sitting by a hollow wall, a holographic wall, and it looks like woodland and it pulls out and it's just a wall and... Burke <clears throat> comes to see her and we learn a little bit more about the fact she had a daughter called Amanda, uh, which uh, aside from alien facts, I did not know Amy was a short for Amanda until I watched this. Cause... Yeah, because I've got Amy written down. Yeah. Oh, yeah I don't so think it is. She, uh, Ripley calls her Amy, but Burke, uh, when he's reading from a file, calls her Amanda. Probably so... just got her name wrong because yeah. he's a dick. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Stupid Burke. Burke's a dick. Oh, good. Good. Let's get into it. Speaking of daughters' names, though, my friend Bawley, uh, Russell, he named his daughter Ripley. Oh, I think it's really cute. awesome. Yeah, yeah really awesome. Cute. Hi, Bawley, if you're listening. <laughs> Hi, Bawley. Um, so <laughs> we learn a bit more uh, about her daughter. She was 66 when she died, and Ripley goes quite emotionally. I told her I'd be back for her 11th birthday. Oh in relation to the trip that she made in Alien. Which now, I think is the most important thing that was cut out of this film that you didn't see because of the yeah. stuff with Newt. It's really thematically... Yeah, like... but so knowing... I knew I didn't... What am I trying to say? I watched the film, mm. the two times I've seen it, I didn't know that. Then I hear about that and it ruined it a little bit. It would have been good to... I, I could have gone into the film knowing that she had a daughter who died and it's, I still would have thought it was great. But not knowing anything about her it still works for me. Like she, sure. you don't know anything. You, 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 Burke tells her it's been 57 years. We're still smoking, but you know, you've, it's 57 years have passed. And she looks gutted, but you don't know why. You just, you, you can fill in the space yourself. And then her relationship with Newt just comes about just because. Yeah, and as that's you nice. would, you'd naturally you want would try, to protect that yeah, child. You would, yeah. And it's not because you have a, you have to have a dead daughter. Mm. Yeah. Basically, there's. Uh, I think the first time we get a mention of the daughter in the non-director's cut is when she's putting Newt to bed in the med lab, yeah. and Newt asks her the question, and Ripley says she's gone, and Newt's like, "You mean she's dead?" Like Newt says everything in that terrifying voice. <laughs> um, so interestingly, Sigourney Weaver hated the fact that that scene was cut from Aliens uh, to the point where. 
when it came around to Alien 3, and I don't want to talk too long about Alien 3, but there were various iterations of a script. Um, hilariously, 90% of the versions of the script that came in all killed off Newt. But uh, right. in one, Hicks was made the protagonist. Ripley was still in it, but in a much more minor role. And Sigourney Weaver was so pissed off about stuff being cut, her backstory being cut, she was like, I'm happy, make Michael Bean the protagonist, make Hicks the protagonist, I'll be in a supporting role in Alien 3. Well, in, in that interview in Hot Dog, James Cameron says that um, Sigourney was very vocal about her, un- her unhappiness at me cutting that scene, but then changed her tune when she got nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> Wow. You gotta love James Cameron. Take that tone out your voice. <laughs> Doesn't mince his words, does he? <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, another argument about why it's important that Newt and Rip, um, Ripley Hicks die at the start of Alien Three uh, very quickly is because it would have changed the tone of the Alien movies. Because suddenly you've got this family, A family yeah. that's created this sort of ragtag family: Ripley, daughter Newt, sort of father. Hicks and even the wacky Uncle Bishop. And if they'd all sort of carried on surviving, it would have been very difficult to make a horror movie or make an alien movie scary. I guess they don't need to carry on surviving, though. You can, as soon as that family is together, you could then kill one of them off. that's the thing, because I've railed against, like, the whole start of Alien 3, but it did strike me that actually it's not the fact they die, it's the way they die Mm. that upsets me the most, because they're not given anything meaningful to do even at the start. I mean, yep. we'll get onto it, but like Alien Three is uh, the start of Alien Three is why I, I, I hate that movie so much because mm. it doesn't just doesn't just like ruin itself in places. It ruins the climax to Aliens because mm. you can never enjoy Aliens and the finale and Newt and Hicks and Bishop all being put in the cryo tubes because you know they die at the start of Alien Three, and it's it's the it's why I, I get so angry at Alien Three. Move on. Yeah, let's get back onto Aliens because it's a great movie. Um, it's the Colonial Marines. I'd like to talk about. So would I. <laughs> I thought we all might. Yay! <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. What a mean bunch of sons of bitches. <laughs> My favorite bit is, and I do. I'm only picking holes because it's such a good film, but. These are supposed to be the best people for the job, right? Some badass hombres. Some badass hombres. Yeah. And it, when Marines are in films or people are in James Cameron films generally, when they're being issued their orders, they never stand in a line. They never stand up straight. One of them is always hanging onto a chain. One of them is always sitting on a barrel for some reason. They give no respect to their superiors. Are there not a team of trained soldiers who are more respectful and disciplined than these bunch of bitches? And for what at this point is being pitched them as not that dangerous a job. Like at this point, it's like, could be a transmitter problem. Wow. Could be murderous aliens. Is it going to be a stand up fight or another bug hunt? (laughs) (laughs) So it's just like, these are clearly not the best people for the job. Yeah. I mean, one of them goes, one of them, like, I don't know the name or who does this. (laughs) Hudson goes, how do I get out of this chicken shit outfit? Yeah. More than once he says that in about 10 minutes. (laughs) All he does is whinge his way through until he redeems himself. But I don't, I just, the, and then when you're, when establishing the team um, dynamic, when they all wake up from their pods, mm. it's, I thought it was quite refreshing that men and women, the sexual politics are sort of taken out of that. They're sharing a bathroom, they're sharing a bedroom effectively, and there's no um, conflict between the men and the women, but there's still a little bit of like bants about, you know, usual bullshit, whatever. But for a team of mixed sex people, 
there's, I thought, a refreshing lack of uh, disrespect shown either way. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And they make it, or, or, or a refreshing, or, or a refreshing amount of disrespect yeah. shown both ways. Yeah. When yeah. Um, Hudson yeah. goes, "Hey Vasquez, do you ever get mistaken for a man?" And she goes, "No, do you?" Great. She talking about that tension on set though. They, they've got this behind the scenes footage of the DP um, keeps calling um, the actress who plays Vasquez, Jeanette Goldstein, keeps calling her love. Yeah. And she says it was not. It was inappropriate for for Vasquez to be called love, and it was inappropriate for me to be called love. And the, yeah, there's just there was just this tension all the way through the shoot between um, the Brits and the Americans. Yeah, um, I didn't. The original DP was James Cameron. Got rid of him. And Dick Bush. Dick mm. Bush. He got rid of him because. He wanted to shoot the alien hive in bright light and light everything, and James Cameron wanted it dark. And they, it got to a situation where he wouldn't compromise for the director, or I'm guessing something along those lines. So is it Adrian Bidden who stepped in? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, I, I can't quite remember. But either way, it's, um, it's, that's, it gives you an idea of just how fractured the atmosphere was. Behind the scenes, Al Matthews, who <laughs> plays Sergeant Apone, he... he seems like the most terrifying of of the of the group of them in real life or in the movie in real life um the, so the the behind the scenes interview with him he's he's got his big cigar oh really yeah Love and that um, cigar. he served in vietnam in real life he was the first african american marine to be promoted to rank of sergeant and he won two purple hearts wow and he said earlier in the shoot some of the younger actors would would point their gun at him and he said don't point that gun at me because i'll shove it down your throat um, he's basically a guy not to be messed with and so he's playing himself essentially in that film <laughs> he pawned he pawned he's gone the Sarge is dead I really miss him when he dies we'll talk about the deaths because I've tried to work out what order this team are dispatched uh, by the aliens in because it's a great scene so we do meet them all and we have that great lunch sequence guess she don't like the cornbread either which is a, a lovely moment and really builds character and mm. actually before we get on to what order they die in, has anyone got a knife? Because I can actually do the knife <laughs> no, trick. No, you fucking can't. Promise you I can. You can't. I can do, not as fast as Bishop because I'm not a synthetic. I've heard him claim this before and I've asked him to just not do it. Yeah, <laughs> no one ever wants to see it. So I've gone through life going... I you hurt yourself. I've had nicks before, but I can do it pretty fast and I learnt it because of this movie. So that's the power of cinema right there. It's reassuring to know you learnt it because of this movie because <laughs> why else would you have learnt... What was it like in your house? <laughs> Prove yourself or no dinner. <laughs> Dad, I don't want to learn. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really like um I really like that uh that scene around the dinner table. And oh, oh, well just before do you want to do Burke now or do you want to carry on with the colonial marines? Because it's important that we establish Burke quite early on. Paul Riser, my two dads, Paul Riser. It's so conflicting. <laughs> it's awful. But done on purpose, I believe, because he's a nice guy, a comedy guy, um, and mm. no one would believe that he is a baddie. Do you not think he's a baddie? Yeah, you did seem a little yeah, bit. You were you just surprised? Were you just being contentious for the sake of being contentious? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. right, fine. Oh, yeah, just being sarcastic. Okay. Um, yeah, it, this was just pre my two dads, but yeah. yeah, he was a very well-known stand-up comic in in New York, and he does bring that New York sort of sarcasm. Mm to the role I honestly if you ever said to me you know those kind of sleazy corporate guys bing always think of Carter Burke like without fail he is the epitome of that kind of person especially at this period in the 80s yeah well I, I mentioned it when we did The Fly the the newspaper editor in that yeah and then I said that he reminds me of the dude from Die Hard 
um, with the beard, whose name I can't remember. Oh, yeah, Ellis. Yeah, I think there's just this 1980s uh, <laughs> yuppie asshole character that, that popped up a lot in these films and mm. the kind of person you really love to hate. But yeah. Ellis is like a, a bit of a hedonist in Die Hard. Burke is just, he's got his eye on the ball. It's all about the game for him. How can he get these aliens back to earth and make a sweet buck which interestingly is what the colonists are trying to do when they investigate the ship on his orders because in the director's oh. cut you won't you might not have seen it where newt's family yeah are in a crawler and they've been given company orders to go and investigate the ship from alien and oh. you see the ship again okay. and newt's parents go inside the ship and then you don't see what happens in there, which I think is very clever because we know what happens in that ship. So Cameron doesn't bother showing us. And then they come back out and it's a real, it's the best moment of that scene is where the door of the crawler flies open and it's the wife because there are mother and father, uh, Newt's mother and father have gone in and the wife immediately gets on the radio and goes, help us, come on, help us. And you see Newt look over her and her, her father is just lying on the ground with a face hugger on him. And she just goes, ah! it's such a good scene. I think also should have been left in, which is why James Cameron put it back in. Interesting. Do you not? No. Uh, <laughs> For why? I, I think when you watch the director's cut, it's a very long runtime. And I think that's one scene that could be cut out. I don't think it makes a huge amount. I think it's a good scene, but I think you really need to get to the action at that point. And it takes over, over an hour and a quarter to get to anything approaching action when you include that scene and several others. So. I thought that, and weird, I thought that as I was watching it. But then, literally, from the lab scene, when the facehuggers are released by Burke, right up until the very end of the movie, it is constant action. So you can divide it almost into two halves. The first half, no action, apart from the sentry guns in the director's cut. Second half, pure action. I guess it's just, uh, for me, I like having a bit of mystery around Newt as well, figuring out who she is and where she's come from and what her situation is. And I will agree with you there. I think the bit where you see the colonists in Hadley's Hope, like just sort of going about their business in the control room and chatting and like, it's sort of, it adds a normality to it that somehow doesn't work because it's, mm. you know, the, the, the bit I do like, and I'm sure you appreciate it, V, about Hadley's Hope, which I hadn't noticed before, the colonists' base. Because, um, you know, we, now we watch the movies looking for something in the background. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, it's got a bar. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you said that. <laughs> that is the first thing I saw. I was like, that looks absolutely fine. And because the light is still on, I would have been like, should we have got Captain Craig <laughs> I was thinking that I was like I was like of all the Marines I'm like I bet Hudson has seen that and gone ooh I'll go in there after snip in here (laughs) a little bit of Dutch courage for what lies ahead and then I noticed another one there's a casino too I'm like this this Hadley's Hope isn't as bad as everyone makes out this shake and bake colony's actually got it right there's only like 60 families there most of those are going to be kids so they're not going to be bothering head to that bar yeah there's no queue at the bar Sorry. Yes, Chris. Um, yeah, so that's that's interesting. I think you're kind of partly right, but I do love that mm. shot of the Newt's father with the face hugger on. It's a good shot. So where did we get to? We were talking through uh, the Colonial Marines. Um, and the way... I, I, I want to say this. I honestly talk about this cast as one of the best uh, best ensemble casts ever assembled. And the the reason I think each of these characters, not just the casting, but the way they have been written in the script is absolutely brilliant. Because normally on this show, we talk about the actors who play the characters 
And in the terms of the Colonial Marines, we could name any single one of their characters' names and know exactly what their traits were and who we're talking about because they are so well drawn with such minimal dialogue. Apologies to Wes Bowski. <laughs> Yeah. Where's Baskin? <laughs> I don't remember much about. Yeah, when I'm they even sure say his name, about. they're like, "Where, where is he?" It's like I don't. Oh, I don't know I that saw, one. You know that bit where they're going, "Where's Bowski? Where's Bowski?" I honestly thought his name was Bowski. I thought they were going, "Where's Bowski? Where's Bowski?" <laughs> yeah. Do you know why though? Apparently, all Where's Bowski's lines because he did have some lines in the original script. All his lines were given to the character Frost, played by Rico Ross, to convince Rico Ross to take the role of Frost because he was going to make Full Metal Jacket. And they were like, here's all Wisbowski's lines. Can you be in it? He's like, yeah, sure. God, that's harsh. Right? That is harsh. Um, yeah, although I, 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 I wish Hicks and Hudson didn't both begin with an H. Again, yeah. <laughs> I think they even make a joke about it in the film. But that's, do, yeah. But that, I thought it was for that kind of joke. He's Hicks. I'm Hudson. That's that's why they've got similar names. But if I didn't have them written down here, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to tell you 100 which ones which. Are you kidding? Well, I know which actors which. That's why I'd rather say Michael Bain or Bill Paxton. Okay. Because I will forget. Okay. Sorry. I mean, it's Hudson is like possibly the greatest character in this movie vicky I, I i love bill paxton and i like hudson but i do fucking hell he mourns a lot doesn't he? like for a marine like, but that's the point he collapses he's all bravado yeah, but almost instantly which i don't <laughs> think is what's supposed to happen and when they first meet the aliens and vasquez she's got this massive gun and she's like fuck it and like shoots everything it's yep. like this doesn't seem very ordered to me <laughs> like you know, I've spent a lot of time in the army. And that's <laughs> when you're not doing gynecology. Fiddling around down there. But it is, it's that whole thing. like Because it's all Gorman's fault, which is why the scene where the colonial marines go in and get their asses handed to them by the aliens. I love that scene because I spend that entire scene. And every time I watch it, it hasn't decreased in its power. Emotionally, I'm livid with Gorman yeah. so livid with him the minute he goes hey, hey Pone I, I want you to collect all, all the magazines in we can't, we can't have any can't have any gunfire down there for flamethrowers only and you're like pull them out immediately do not send them to their deaths I'm furious with him anyway as I was going to say the order in which I think they die I think you can only get to Wes Bowski and even then I'm not sure for certain Frost dies first when Dietrich flamethrowers him by accident when she gets grabbed by the alien. And then Crow dies second from the blast from the ammunition in the bag. After that, because some of them are just taken and impregnated and not killed, it's difficult to say what order they die in. It's okay. We're not testing you. Yeah. Uh, I've given you a little help with a quiz a little bit later. <laughs> divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. <laughs> So it's um, 35 minutes in, they introduce the power loader. I like that. Just a little yeah. Yeah. A little snippet. Um, where, where do you want it? <laughs> Bay 15, please. <laughs> um, 45 minutes before they land on the planet. An hour and 12 minutes before the chest burster appears, and, and then it's on. An hour and t- 12 minutes in. Game over, man. Happens pretty soon after that. When the drop ship, yeah, when Spunkmeyer bites the dust, followed quickly by Pharaoh. We're in some pretty shit now. <laughs> I feel like this half of the podcast is mainly Alex shouting at us. <laughs> I can't help it. I kind of knew this was going to happen. Like I said earlier, this is my most quoted movie in real life. I define moments in this movie by a quote from this movie, generally Hudson's quote. 
But it's nice, um, the interviews with Carrie Henn on the set at the time and, and the interviews done a few years later for the documentary. Um, as a kid, she did talk that quietly and sweetly mm. and had kind of this weird transatlantic accent because she was an army brat. Oh, okay. She was American but living in uh, England. Right. And, um, yeah, the, 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 that is how she talked when she was a little girl. I found their relationship, like this time around, just so... When she's, when she's mute and she won't speak because she's so traumatised. She's mute, mute. She's mute. <laughs> is that a garbage pail, kid? <laughs> <laughs> this time around, I found it so moving. Like I was really, really troubled by it, which I know you're supposed to be. But first time I saw it, I was like, mm. whatever, you've seen some shit, get over it. You seem to be doing all right. Um, and this time around, I was very, very moved. That was her, uh, in, the, in that scene that was cut out, that's her real life brother playing her brother. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Um, oh, that's so sad. I see, I didn't see that scene. She's like, where's your, and she just sort of shakes her head. Oh, that's Timmy. really. Is it Timmy? Timmy. Timmy, really yeah, like which that. is a, you know, a, a, a it, it is name, but. the perfect name for a dead younger brother. <laughs> yeah. Timmy. And that, that was her only it's... film credit. She became a teacher. But she chose to become a teacher. She'd already, or at least she. I hope she wasn't forced to become a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> her experience experience of working with James Cameron she was like fuck this I'm going to become a teacher he's like you're going to become a teacher the thing is about her that um, she wasn't bothered at all about being killed at the start of Alien 3 she was like I'd already decided I didn't want to be an actor at that point her her, uh, bio in her Twitter account says uh, they're mostly my tweets mostly (laughs) that's excellent I saw Carrie that's brilliant big shout out yeah um, so can we discuss um, Octurian Poontang? What's that, Alex? What's that? It's one of the most famous lines in this movie in so much as it has started a billion conversations online about the world of aliens. Here is the clip in question. For your boy, Hey, you sure would mind getting some more of that Arcturian boom thing. Remember that time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bro, the one that you had was male. <laughs> no matter what it's Arcturian, bro. Arcturian poontang. Mm. So this is a huge conversation because what are they talking about? What is an Arcturian? Where do they come from? What is this? Is it another alien race? Um, has anyone done any digging on this? Because I'm <laughs> weirdly. <laughs> oh, I went quite deep on this. Um, so again, these were Wesbowski's lines that were given to Frost. Uh, Octurians are a race that I had to look up because I was like, "What are they talking about? What is an Octurian?" Uh, in the uh, 1991 Aliens Adventure Game role-playing game, and as a role player in 1991, I'm upset that i didn't know about this i was into Shadowrun mainly at that point if there's any role players listening they'll know the Shadowrun universe it's brilliant anyway they describe octurians as a humanoid bipedal uh, that are comparatively lacking in mental capacity their intelligence has been likened to that of lower apes they are also eyeless and communicate through sonar you have got to believe that that is not the octurians they're talking about in that scene because that's fucking weird. Yeah, you don't want that poontang. Right. The other argument <laughs> is that it's from Dan O'Bannon's Last Tomorrow comic where the Octurians are a shapeshifter, but it's spelt different, so that's been ruled out. There's another argument that they were colonists uh, who actually moved to the planet of Octurus. This is from the bigger alien universe. Mm-hmm. I've been investigating this. They go to the planet Octurus in the 24th century, and it could be them. James Cameron has never fully detailed 
what the Ecturians were. And he says this was to build mystery. It's just a bit of world building. Mm. But they were aliens, but human-like. And both the men and women were very pretty. Hence, it didn't matter if it was a man or a woman. But mostly... (laughs) (laughs) Mostly... (laughs) Mostly, it's um, thought to be another... A reference to the Vietnam War and how GIs use sex workers, sex workers on their downtime. Uh, a lot of which was spent in Thailand, um, was where they encountered Thai ladyboys, and mm. that is what Octarian Poontang is a reference to. I feel that I may have gone too deep on a very niche aspect of aliens right now because your faces are like, <laughs> wasn't prepared to talk about Octarian Poontang. <laughs> Yeah. An excuse to get some boinking in. <laughs> I, 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 I may say boinking a lot. This is the most I've ever used poontang in my life. Oh, yeah. And it's uncomfortable. <laughs> okay, good. Oh, good. Good research, Alex. Thanks. Thanks on a, a very, very weird bit of the movie. Can we talk about the um, underlying romance between um, Hicks and Ripley? And also, can did you notice the not reach around, reach around? The teaching her to play pool scene, which I talk about constantly in any rom com, where he teaches her how to. Use, I know it's not reach. I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he teaches her to use a big gun, and he's like, "You put it here, and you do whatever." <laughs> and he stood behind her, and she's like, "Ooh, stand closer." The classic. I fucking love that she scene. She even says, uh, "Show me everything." Yeah. Does it go in here? Or something? <laughs> <laughs> you started it. Like, yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. But, but if you're waiting for that scene, is that a good thing? If I'm waiting for it, no, because I was completely unexpecting it. Like, okay. I think their subtle, like, you know, that their relationship might develop into something else is really well drawn and really well done. And so the re- the reach around, not reach around thing is just a fun, you yeah. know. Because it's not overcooked, is it? That that relationship no. between the I two. I absolutely just right. love it when he gives her that stupid watch thing, <laughs> but says, "Don't." This doesn't mean we're engaged yeah. or anything. And there's such a cute, like, it's really funny. But mm. he's really. I mean, a lot of this is down to him. Like, there is something about Michael Bean's face and mm. the way he carries himself in this role. And I've watched a couple of interviews with him and he comes across like that in real life, very laid back and very, like, a, he has this brilliant morality about him of all the Marines. And of course, yeah. they shot for a week with a different actor in that role. Yeah, James Ramar, who people will know from The Warriors, or he's also Dexter's dad in, in Dexter. And yeah, they said at the time it was over creative differences that he left the project. But he's since talked about uh, drugs, Terrible drug problem. He said, I got busted for possession and, and um, I got replaced. So, yeah, it would have been a very different film with him in. But he, he, he does look a little bit like him. And so they were able to actually use a couple of moments where they couldn't reshoot. Yeah. Where he's kind of got his back to screen. And That's right. You, it's when they first enter the yeah. Hadley's Hope and um, it is him from behind. Mm. They got the same rear. <laughs> um. Shall we mention the Queen Alien? It seems uh, remiss of us not to talk about the Queen Alien. How could we not? How could we not? Um, In the lead up to uh, the Queen Alien sequence, Mm -hmm. I'd like to mention something that was not reinstated into the director's cut of this movie, but was shot and is available to see on YouTube. So you didn't miss anything, V, because it's not in James Cameron's special edition. It's Burke's death. You know, you see Burke... It's like, just a cutaway, isn't it? Cutaway, yeah. yeah. You see, um, how do you mean? He will, he's, he's hiding in the room by himself to be, he's being cowardly and they're banging on the door saying, let me in. And he sort of opens a cupboard or he opens mm. a door and then there's an alien there yeah. and that, it just and cuts it goes, away. <sighs> yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a bit after that where you see what happens to Burke. You actually see him again in the film, 
where Ripley's looking for Newt and she's following a tracker and she turns a corner and Burke is cocooned on the wall and he's like, help me, help me. And he, it's, it's a really awful moment, even though he's a dick. And he's like, I can feel it inside me moving around. And because she's on the hunt for Newt at that point, she barely stops. She just puts a grenade in his hand so he can kill himself if he's brave enough and walks on. And it's a great moment. Do you know why James Cameron didn't put that in? Apparently, and I hope I'm not wrong, it's because he worked out the life cycle of how long it would take for Burke to have been captured, cocooned, right. impregnated, and be close to bursting, and it wasn't long enough yeah. in the timeline of the movie, yeah. which I think is so respectful yeah. and so clever and a brilliant decision, and also means that Ridley Scott should have taken a leaf out of his book when making <laughs> Alien Covenant, because literally Billy Crudup gets an alien inside him, David yeah. has a cigarette while standing there going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he wakes up and he goes, oh, here it comes. And you're like, 15 minutes? Shut up, Ridley Scott. <laughs> uh, no, you're absolutely right. So let's talk about the standoff between the mummies mm-hmm. um, by the alien queen's eggs. Um, yes. I love that scene because I feel it's like an especially fraught encounter, of which there are many at a kid's soft play centre. <laughs> because she's like, hey, we all thought these eggs were for bouncing on. I can see now that they're not. I'm going to take my child over here to the slide. You call off your mates and we'll call it even. <laughs> and that's what happens at kids' soft play centres quite a lot. What, and then do you burn <laughs> the kids? It depends. Again, that's once, you, once you've got to safety, do you burn them? Don't, don't mess with my kids. Do you know what I mean? But also, I just love that scene because I love the fact that they're communicating with each other as mothers. Mm. But I love, love, love when the uh, baby alien is coming out of the egg and just the slight flick of Ripley's head and she's like, fuck it. And then (laughs) just says hi to him. I'm going to 100% disagree with you. Why? Because it's a huge problem for me, that sequence, because the queen alien calls off her warriors and Ripley goes, right, I'm going to back out of here with my offspring. I'm not going to flamethrow your eggs. Mm -hmm. And then the egg opens and Ripley looks at the queen alien like, you dick, now you're in for it. Yeah. Eggs don't open at the behest of the queen alien. They open because of motion. So it's only Ripley walking by that egg that triggers it to open. So the queen alien was probably going to stick to her side of the bargain and let her walk out of there. So there's no reason for Ripley to look at the queen alien like, you've done this, and then flamethrow the eggs because she had no control over it. Yeah, But Ripley doesn't know that. No, but I assume that even if Alex is right, it's still fine because... She, the flick of her head isn't, oh, you fuck, you, like, you didn't go through with our bargain. It is. So I, think it's, I think the flick of the head is more like, I can do both. Like, I can get my child out of here and I can destroy your shit. Mm, no. Tough. The, I, I, the look is meant to read. I'm, I'd, put, I'd put money on the look meant to read. You have waited till I got to the edge and then you're going to try and impregnate us. It's blame. It's a look of blame. Like, you thought, oh, I'm, now you're getting it. It's yeah. not. Because it, the implication for all this detailed filmmaking i think cameron's got it wrong there because the implication in that scene is the queen alien has opened that egg on purpose she hasn't ripley walking by it has done that i never thought that and that is apparent by your silence <laughs> <laughs> um so the reason that geiger didn't uh, wasn't involved in this film is that is that james cameron is a very fine artist himself and he said all we needed to design for this film knew was the uh, alien queen and he designed um what he wanted he'd done an amazing uh picture early on in pre-production of ripley and the power loader and the alien queen 
And we'll post that on the Twitter because it is remarkable. I mean, it looks like the ending of the film pretty much. Um, he just he knew what he was doing completely from the word go, and uh, it's a really, really great painting, and I want it. So, James, <laughs> if you're listening, I love the moment where the Queen Alien uses the lift. It's so ridiculous because she's got a fit of fingers now, like to go. Beep, 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 like. Yeah, and she does have fingers, but it's the idea that she suddenly goes, "I know how these work. Yeah, these are those up and down and I, boxes. I can also read your numbers, <laughs> your floor, and I know where you've yeah. gone. Yeah, but it is it became a trademark of James Cameron's didn't it because he always puts something that doesn't belong in a lift in a lift <laughs> like there's the Queen Alien in this there's the T-1000 on a motorbike in T2 and then there's Arnie on a horse mm. in a lift in True Lies oh my god I love that film <laughs> <laughs> so it's something he always goes what can I put in a lift this such time such a weird thing to have isn't it as like, your quirk <laughs> So then we're on to the big battle of the bitches, um, <laughs> where they are. It's my it's my Game of Thrones reference. <laughs> they're on they're back on the Salako, and she emerges in the power loader. Mm, uh, this is this, a great reveal, which is also a great this, line. The, but just before that line, the tragedy of like it's so sweet. The bit where she goes. You did all you right, did Bishop. Good. Yeah, yeah, you did it's good. It's really sad. Mm. And, and he goes... And he really fucking didn't. <laughs> you really messed up. <laughs> it's not his fault the Queen Alien got on the landing gear. It might be. It's not. <laughs> he literally saved Ripley's ass. But also, like, just to go back to the scene where he has to crawl down that pipe. Oh, my God. I love that scene. It's terrifying. Like... The thought of him being sealed in is terrifying. And as he's being, well, he goes down and he says, mind your fingers. And it's like, you're such a nice man. And also it's the way that the aliens are getting to and from the complex. So there's every chance. You just run at him. He's going to be faced with an alien. And he clearly gets, uh, as established, I think in this, but certainly in Alien 3, he feels pain. And he understands fear. He goes, I'm a synthetic, but I'm not stupid. I may be synthetic, but I'm not stupid. That's a terrifying scene. But when he goes, he goes, I did. Like that after Ripley goes, you did good. I did. Poof, yeah. in two. Torn in half. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Just letting that lie there. There's a moment, huh? A moment. Chris, did you get emotional? Very much so. Yeah, Bishop. I mean, well, I'm going to spoil my bits coming up. So oh, okay. That's why I'm kind of... Do we have anything else before we get to the uh, bits then? Is there anything else you'd like to mention? I think I've gone through most... Uh, it's that weird bit about Octurians. <laughs> that took up a bit of time, didn't it? <laughs> I'm so sorry about that. I really thought it was going to be one of those moments where we all went, yes! Oh my God, I did so much research. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the one bit of trivia I like uh, that's completely out of left field is that Al Matthews, who I spoke about, the decorated war hero, um, he also played Benny Green's dad in Grange Hill. No! Yes. Oh, that's good trivia. <laughs> that is... <laughs> Um, my, only, done, uh, my trivia is not nearly as good. It's the fact that at the end of Shane Black's The Predator, where the Predator armour comes out at the end, which isn't really even trivia because so few people care about that <laughs> movie and what happens at the end. But there was going to be a time travel ele- element, elephant. There was going to be a time travel <laughs> elephant. That would have been great and less ridiculous than what I'm about to mm. say, which is where the, ali- uh, the Predator killer armour was going to be come out worn by Ripley. Sigourney Weaver wasn't going to be playing it, but it was going to be Ripley entered the Predator universe at the end of the Predator as the Predator killer. And her armor was like, her face mask was like a face hugger, but all metallic. And she looked like, you know, someone prepared to kill a 
Predators, but it was Ripley and she'd come from the future to back to Earth. Yeah. And then when they were like, that's a terrible idea, they yeah. went, should we do the same thing with Newt? And then that got poo-pooed as well. And then and I stepped in. elephants. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, best scene in Aliens, Chris. Yeah, well, I'll say it because you just asked me. Uh, Bishop getting spiked. I think it's a really brilliant shot and it's quite a surprise the way it happens. And yeah, I think that is the best moment in the film which surprised me because it's not one I remembered that well Mm. but just watching it happen I was like wow that is so effective so much milk so much milk (laughs) it was no he ended up getting sick from drinking too much it was it was a it was a combination of uh, milk and yogurt which was left sitting there it it got warm oh god and he said the way it congealed it made it made him literally ill they had to get something else in that's my actual worst nightmare how is that now the worst moment of aliens um if all all that happens the idea of him drinking warm poisoned yogurt (laughs) milk oh that's disgusting it's interesting the first time i saw it i didn't wasn't quite clear what was happening i didn't realize it was her tail i was like why mm. how is a chest burster in him i thought it, i think it's meant to look initially like a chest burster before yeah nice callback. Yeah. before it's revealed to be uh the queen alien's tail it's a great scene vicky uh when newt is when newt falls down the sort of the air vent wheel thing when oh. um hicks and ripley lose her and she goes down the vent and they tell her to stay still and then she ends up sort of underneath the floor in the water the the tension in that scene is unreal, but also I realised I wasn't... When we watch films for this podcast, I, t- I take a lot of notes because I think, fuck, I've got to say something. So it's like, pay attention. But I, I never really watched the film properly, whereas I'd stopped writing, I'd stopped doing everything. I was so, so, so gripped, which doesn't happen very often with films on this podcast. Like I was watching a film like a normal person <laughs> because the way it's shot, the way that the alien appears in the water, she's got a little dolly. It's mm. really scary Really tense um, and just masterfully done. Mm, a true horror movie moment. Yeah. Mm. Alex? Uh, I find the moment where Ripley really goes, okay, I've had enough of you lot, especially you, Gorman. I'm going to take charge here. Um, the colonial marines are dying and she takes the wheel of the APC and drives in to rescue yeah. them. And it's the tail end of the action sequence, strikes, awful, horrific, acid in the face, demise, uh, them trying to get in the APC, uh, that whole chase scene. And it really, James Horner's score, because I know James Horner said I was not given enough time mm. to score this movie properly. He's properly bitter about that. Mm. God, watch him talk about that. And, like, he's <laughs> properly angry. It's amazing they work together again. Well, I think James Cameron saw, heard his score for Braveheart and went, I love that, mm. come and do Titanic. Exactly, so yeah. he did the score for Titanic and then won his Oscar. But yeah, it was a long period between mm. what, ten, over 10 years. But yeah, that score, uh, the alien score at that point with the APC um, was great, which apparently that APC was so heavy they had to reinforce the floor at Acton Power Station. I didn't realise they shot all the interiors of the complex at the old Acton Power Station in East London. But it was a hmm. real... It used, to try, it was used to pull planes, that APC, and it weighed a tonne. It wasn't like some ridiculous no, it fell through the floor. Built. It went through the floor at one point. Did it? It had to be pulled out with a crane. Yeah. And that Acton Hello, pa- I'm Gail Ann Hurd. Let me talk about <laughs> safety. <laughs> Acton Power Station um, was filled with asbestos as well, and they spent a fortune removing the oh asbestos while they were shooting there. But did there. they really? Did they like, oh no, it's gone now, don't worry. It's going to be 50 years before that comes back to bite us in the ass. So and also, because we talked about it on the pod, that's the Axis chemical plant from Batman. Mm. The, Is it? The yeah, atmosphere yeah. processors in Aliens are the Axis chemical plant, and there are like almost moments that match up between Aliens and oh, like Batman. That. That's mm. good. 
Okay, uh, sorry, let's do MVC or MVW, sorry, most valuable, whatever. Um, Lance Henriksen as bishop. Mm. Uh, because just because of so little appears to have been done to his face, and yet he's terrifying. He's got a face like a frozen lake. Like, <laughs> um, and he, and like I said before, with the mind your fingers line, and he's brave, he does something that seems impossible, like to be buried alive to go and find the, um, to remote control the spaceship is amazing. He's even at the end, he's saving Newt and he's in half. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's amazing. It's that, or it's the pods that they sleep in. Did you not think they look like the most relaxing things you'd ever seen in your life? Uh, yes. <laughs> I have a real thing about being very closed in at night. I, sent, yeah. I, like, I like to be against a wall and I like to put, put cushions next to me. Like, it's very strange. But yeah, I like being enclosed when I rest. So yes. In a womb-like environment. That's what that is. Um, Thanks. It's okay. <laughs> so you, you probably knew that. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah. But also they look so relaxed when they're asleep. So sleep is such a big part of these films. When at the start of Aliens, she she is sleeping, but she's waking up with, in a sweat with nightmares. And then by the end, she sleeps. She looks so peaceful, Ripley, sleeping like a baby. And everyone looks so. I mean, when the Marines wake up, they seem really groggy. But when they're asleep, they look calm. Like it looks so. Mm. Um, but then why is that? Why is sleep such a big thing? Is it about? Is it? All, I know it's not all a dream, but um, what's the motif? Why is there a sleep motif in it? Is it about when you're unconscious? And the connection between, like, again, the vastness of space, the unknowability of space, and when you're unconscious, are you more connected to that in some way? I don't know. I thought they had to sleep to travel long no, distances. Travel long, dis- travel long distances. <laughs> right, yeah, that's the answer. Fine. I do know, because Ripley does talk to Newt about dreams a lot. Am I allowed to dream? Can I dream? Is yeah. this a dream? Do yeah. I dream of monsters? Yeah. All right. Um, uh, so... My, have you done yours yet, Chris? Sorry, no. I was dreaming. You can um, do yours if you want. Uh, mine uh, is uh, Hudson. I'm surprised, Vicky, that you find him so irritating because I just love it. You know, every every uh, line is wonderful. It's him or Apone, actually. You yeah. know, another glorious day in the core. I think we should start saying that about this pod. <laughs> it's another glorious day on the pod. Every meal is crisps. Every paycheck forthcoming. <laughs> Every meal is crisps. That's such a dream. Like a crisp buffet. Chris, <laughs> uh, uh, my favourite character is Burke, but I am going to get to him in the next section. So uh, I'm going to say uh, the power loader is my MVW. It's been done to death <laughs> since in stuff like um, the Matrix, Tomorrow, Matrix The Matrix, District 9. Yeah. It's been done to death, but this was, I think, the first time it was properly done on screen. And it's just a great tool for allowing your your uh, hero to fight an alien creature mm-hmm. of that size and magnitude. And it's just, yeah. it's an awesome visual image. Bad ass is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So uh, the big one though, what would you change? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll continue what I was saying. Okay. So Burke was my favorite character and I wish he had a more prolonged and dramatic death. <laughs> so you've obviously talked about the scene that was excised. Yep. I would have been unhappy if it had worked out like that, but it's, it is a great, it's a great moment. But obviously, if it goes against the logic of the script, but I just think um, he's such a, a horrible character that I think it really deprives the audience of a deeply satisfying <laughs> movie moment by cutting away for his death. I, I think he yeah. is redeemed by his jazzy collar, though. Um, <laughs> Collar's amazing. It's really amazing. I was really yeah. taken with it. <laughs> 
Come um, on, what do, you, what do you say, kiddo? <laughs> Love, the fact he uses kiddo yeah, so often. Yeah, a woman of his age or older. <laughs> it's, um, it is an interesting one. I do agree with you because I remember the first, even the first time I watched it as a nine-year-old, eight or nine years old, I remember not being clear if he died yeah. because I needed things signposted at that age. And the fact that you don't see him die or like the mouth go through his head or anything, you are sort of left. I, like, there was a part of me that's like, so does he die or is he still alive, hidden away somewhere on the complex? Well, well although they're horror films, science fiction, whatever, the, most of the people that die, 99% of the people that die, don't deserve to die. He's the one that finally deserved to die, and we don't get to see it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, my change would be that Newt doesn't call Ripley mommy at the end, yeah. um, because that erases Newt's birth mother. And Ripley wouldn't stand for that. Um, and also she doesn't need that. So she can have a relationship with the child that recognises who the child came from, where the child came from. And if we're going to explore motherhood in this way, you can't cancel out one mum for another. Mm. So it, it just it really jars. Would it have been better if she'd gone, stepmummy? Just, or Ellen. Yeah. Whatever. Or you don't know how much time I'm going to spend convincing your kids to call me mommy at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody hell, Al. We've been in this room too long. <laughs> hey, just popping round, Victoria. How you doing? Yeah. Oh, are these your kids? Hey, mummy. Oh, in your face. That's so upsetting. <laughs> um, yay. Good. So my one change. I, do you know what, though? Uh, in all honesty, I think you're absolutely right. I only noticed on this watch, because it's not absolutely clear no. That she calls her mommy yeah. at the end. Mm. And it feels very on the nose um, mm. in a script that is otherwise quite good. Uh, my change is quite a simple one um, in a movie where I honestly don't think the effects have dated that much, especially not the military hardware. There's one shot uh, in this whole thing that always makes me go, ugh, why is that in it? Like, I don't think, I don't think it's an essential shot. And it looks so rubbish is where the bug stomper, the dropship, is flying through the clouds at the start. It looks just bad. Because mm. you see it again at the end, flying back into the complex, and you're like, that looks cool. Just against the clouds, looks a bit rubbish. But apart from that, uh, it's a perfect film. So, shall we do uh, the verdict or the quiz? I've got a quiz. Wait. I've got a quiz. Okay. Um... Which you have had forewarning about because I texted you about it. Oh, in the I thought week. that was a joke. No, it's not a joke. It's oh. not a joke. I was going to do a quiz about. I'm not. It's not. It's going to be fine. It'd be Let's quick. do both quizzes. Let's do both quizzes, and we can cut one out if we want. <laughs> oh, that's nice. That's nice. Yeah. I wonder whose yeah. will get yeah. cut out. Yeah, pit us against each other. Huh? Alex doesn't edit it anymore. So, oh, he does send those secret yeah. emails about stuff. Oh, yeah. Do you know what he'd do? He'd murder us in our cryo sleep. <laughs> I wanted to do a quiz about other heroines, but I thought that the elephant in the room is pregnancy and birth. So let's get to this. You fucking idiots. Are you ready? (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited. I'm inspired. It's really basic. Okay, so true or false. When you're pregnant, the fetus depletes your optic fluid so severely you're disqualified from driving for nine months. False. Is that true or false? (laughs) It's false, but it does deplete the vitamins in your teeth so much and you vomit a lot so you get free dentistry. That's a fact. Um, what is, is this a quiz or are you just going to tell us things about pregnancy? You're allowed to guess the answer. That constitutes I just a did. quiz. Yeah, sorry. And you're correct. It is false. There's, it, it doesn't touch your optic fluid. Okay. That's why I said that. Um, what is amniotic fluid mostly made of? Anyone? Whiskey. <laughs> piss. <laughs> it's piss. <laughs> piss. Two for two. I'm so surprised. <laughs> 
It's obvious, isn't it? Yes. Right, one minute. What is a linear nigra? Is it a dark line on your pregnant stomach or a delicious cocktail commonly used to induce labour? I'm going for <laughs> the first one. You're not even trying, Alex! I heard cocktail and I was like, when does this end? <laughs> what is an episiotomy? Anyone? Oh, this is... Uh, oh, before you become a fully-fledged trapeze artist... <laughs> You're an appease artist, and then you finally get your tree trip it at the end. Do you know? It's something. It's something post World War Two. What the? Something to do with the Germans and the English. Are you being serious? No. Right. <laughs> it's a little snip in your perineum to ease the passage of the baby. The best way of thinking about it is when two becomes one. So it is like an, a policy of appeasement. And is that also what the Spice Girls song is about? <laughs> I think it, well, I can't listen to that without thinking of that. Um, having a C-section requires you to be hooked up to a catheter for 24 hours after the procedure, true or false? <laughs> oh, true. False. That just... is 100% true. No, Yay! it's 40, 48 hours, actually, I think you'll find. I think I'll find, <laughs> having had two. <laughs> and that's why I'm not answering these Final questions. Final question. Um, <laughs> Fell right into that one, didn't you, you idiot? Does the first six weeks of breastfeeding feel like A, mincing your nipples in shards of glass, B, shredding your nipples in a bowl of razor blades, or C, crushing your nipples in a vice made of flint? Or D, pretty sexy. <laughs> a, B or C. What? I think all of them. All of them, all the time. That's there we the go. correct answer. I know. I know. Chris, you won that quiz well by done. lots. Yep. yep, my quiz <laughs> just seems to pale in comparison to that journey. I would expect so. Um, it's but it's one where both of you could be winners. Oh. Um, <laughs> I want you to name all the colonial marines going one at a time. Now, if you get all of them, okay. both of you win. But if we reach a colonial marine, if there's still two left on the table sure. and it's someone's going, they can't get it. Okay, so we're going to work other. together. This is good. Well, no, because you have to answer individually. So, Chris, do you want to start? You're going to do one sure. at a time. I yeah. am okay. going to say Hudson. Uh, Spunk Meyer. Good. Yeah, it's two. Both right, Chris. Hicks. Yep. Vicky. Frost. Yep. Uh, Vasquez. Oh, now I've yep. run out. Apon. Yes. Uh, does Bishop count? No. Oh, come we, on. Have you we can said, do this. Um, Hicks. Yes. There's a lot left. Oh, really? And I've mentioned a lot of yeah, them. Yeah. Well, um, God, the bloke about going back. Honestly, I, people are screaming uh, in uh, wherever oh. they're listening to this podcast right now. There's a you can do this, Drake. Come, yes, Vicky. You keep going. I'm done. V. What's it? I've forgotten his name already. Where's Where's That's what I'm trying to think of. Where's Where's, where's backside? Was it? Where's, where's Bowski? Where's Bowski? Yeah. Okay. You've got four to get. I think we're done here. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that was. Uh, Who did we miss? I'm going to tell you right now. You missed from the list of Colonial Marines, Pharaoh, the pilot of mm-hmm. Bug Stomper, Gorman, oh, uh, shit. surprisingly, <laughs> and less surprisingly, Dietrich and Crow, who have very little to do in the movie, Wait. other than die. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Okay. Well played, Vicky. Okay. <laughs> verdict. Uh, before we go into the verdict, we have the Clash comments. <clears throat> And I want to say thank you. We had a lot of feedback uh, this week. Mm-hmm. So I'm only picking five. We can't get through them all, but thanks to everyone who wrote in. So uh, in terms of what people like better, Sarah from 
Texas said, I just did a double feature of this a few months ago. They're both brilliant, but I've got to go Aliens because the rescue of Jonesy and Alien is unnecessarily stressful for me. <laughs> Correct. Um, Rob Walker says, um, Alien is as close to cinematic perfection as is possible. An utterly stunning film that hasn't aged a day. Aliens is great, but I'd pick Alien over it every time. Uh, Matthew uh, says, as a teen, it would have been aliens all the way, but now it's the grittier, artsier class struggle depicting alien that wins. Plus, in the aliens extended cut, it has that cringe bit where Ripley says families like the lives of singletons are meaningless. <laughs> I agree with him. Families. Yeah. <laughs> Two sex. Dino. Dino says, both are brilliant and it's hard to pick a favourite, but I watched Alien in a McDonald's just outside Calais without, <laughs> subtit- without subtitles and it was effing brilliant. <laughs> And it really sets the scene. I love that. <laughs> and then one left uh, from Phil. He says, uh, Aliens is an incredible sci-fi action movie, but Alien is just a game changer in terms of design. It doesn't have an ounce of fat on it, is ludicrously tense, and entered the social consciousness on the same level as Jaws and Star Wars before it. Great so comments. Base, thank you very much. Hashtag Clash Comments is if you want to get in touch uh, with us regarding each episode. So based on those comments, it's 4-1 yeah. to Alien. And obviously that was just five of them, but I think Alien was pretty much the winner of the, of the comments we received. So how is it going to go in the room? It's time for the verdict. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the added tension, Chris. That's nice. Um, who would like to go first? Um, Chris. Well, both films concern a woman constantly being silenced and ignored by men, in spite of the fact that she's always right. Would you agree, Vicky? Are you going to talk over me? Sorry, Alex. I was going to ask her. I was directing that to you, Al. Didn't mean to direct it to her. It was an accident. She's one step ahead now. <laughs> oh, I have one. Yeah, it's just a bit of fun. It's just a bit of fun. It's all just a bit of fun, isn't it? If I don't get it, that's on me. It's just a high five afterwards. (laughs) And we're both both high fiving. Um, (laughs) No, that's why I sit so far away from you. I like the effects and the design and the sound and the music and the performances and the story and the direction of Alien a lot. I'm scared the whole time, um, created that mythology. It's got a lot of reveals that I don't think we appreciate now because those surprises have all been spot a long time ago but i think it's very effective on that front aliens for me it takes a bit too long to get going um and at times feels a little bloated in that first hour so alien is a perfect organism a purpose-built fear machine i so admire its structural perfection that aliens has my sympathies because i'm going for alien that's one for alien mm. victoria I, I don't know what's going to happen here so um well I'll, I'll, I'll be clear. Yeah, let's do yours no, next because everyone knows what you're picking. Because you keep they, saying it. Do they know what I'm picking? <laughs> do they? I think I've been very mysterious about my feelings throughout this podcast. But I think on previous episodes it might have come up. Anyway. Okay. And also the top 10 movies of all time that I put on Twitter the <laughs> other the day. Other day. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's spoiled. <laughs> Cheers, Al. Yeah, I forgot. I forgot we were going to do this when I put that up. Um, no, I think Vicky should go next because okay. I'd, I'd be interested. To uh, get to... as angry as I've ever. <laughs> oh no! I ever... just I was... No, I don't know what's about to happen. Um, so the last hour of Aliens um, is just so—it's so thrilling and it's so gripping. It's brilliantly done. I agree with a lot of the comments we've had. The Alien set the template. Now this is a really niggly thing. And it's really stupid, but. I was brought out of Aliens, even though it's a completely different genre, and you know you have different expectations. 
because of this tiny little thing, it's this, just as an example, when the Marines are in the, locked into the room and they can see on their little blip monitor thing that the aliens are coming and Hudson's screaming, they're in, they must be in the room and it's like, you're looking all around, where are they, where are they, this is terrifying and they're in the roof. And Sigourney Weaver is forced to say something like, they're in the roof, guess we forgot to seal the roof. And these are meant to be the best people for the job. In Alien, they're miners, they've got a, a fucking lighter and a net and they are very much not the best people for the job well hang on in aliens newt's a minor thank you i'll be here all night <laughs> tried the that's, veal that's <laughs> so for that reason because alien works better on the terms itself has set out i have to pick alien oh my god <laughs> So I honestly thought, right. you know what was weird was I answered someone on our At Clash Pod Twitter account this morning going, just finished the Armageddon <laughs> Deep Impact episode, cannot believe Armageddon didn't win. And I wrote back personally going, yeah, you're absolutely right. It I was saw. a travesty. This fits in to the same category as you idiots picking Deep Impact over Armageddon as the best asteroid movie. Aliens is the better film. I mean, it's not the same. I take that back because Alien is just a, a work of art. It's brilliant. Aliens is the better movie. Come on, guys. I'll give you like two minutes to just change your stupid mind. Don't look at him. What are we doing next time? Who's, to, who's picking the movies? Who's picking the movies so we can make another bad decision next time? You are. I'm picking The Relic and House of Wax as my movies for the next show. Uh, Victoria, you can have uh, House of Wax. Great. And you can have The Relic, Chris. I hope you enjoy those movies. Neither of them are that good, but I love them. <laughs> So it really won't matter what we decide at the end. So next week's show is The Relic and House of Wax. Thank you for listening. Uh, apologies to everyone who's screaming uh, out loud, wherever you are, on the tube, on a bus, at home, in your bedroom, about the fact that Alien has beaten Aliens on this week's pod. But that is that. Uh, I'm going to go to the pub with these clowns and have a massive argument. <laughs> we'll be back in a week. Bye-bye. This was a Stakhanov production.